Hey, that's a lot of Hollywood baloney. Your classic werewolf could change shape any time it wants, day or night, whenever it takes a notion to. That's why I call them shapeshifters. I got a dozen books on it. What about killing it with silver bullets? Well, sure. Silver bullets are fire. It's the only way to get rid of the damn things. They're worse than cockroaches. They come back from the dead if you don't kill them right. Plus, they regenerate. You know what that is? Cut off an arm, cut off a leg, stick a knife in a heart, nothing. They may look dead, but bam, three days later, they're as good as new. You believe in this? What, am I an idiot? I'm making a buck here. You want books? I got books. I got chicken blood. I got dog embryos. I got black candles. I got wolf paint. Look at this. Silver bullets. Some joker ordered them. 3006. Never picked them up. I take back America, American Express, Visa. Give me a bite out of what? I know the rift is in your eye. What are you trying to Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area, as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, it's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures on all social media. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all the major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as a Cinemadness movie possible. All right, Jim. What are we talking about today? Well, today we are going back to the magical year of 1981, which is 40 years ago, I guess this year, incidentally. And we are talking about the werewolves of 1981. And this topic was picked by today's guest. He is the frontman for the awesome band Cursive, the awesome band The Good Life. And he's also an awesome solo artist who does a really mean Cindy Lauper cover. Please welcome to The Void. Tim Casher. Tim, how are you doing? Great. How are you two doing? Good, man. Doing good. Excellent. So, first off, when I was talking to you about being on the podcast, and I said, just pick a topic and some movies within the topic. How did you come upon picking The Werewolves of 1981? So, I'll confess that it was born of something I, 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 something I saw on social media, and I can't, I don't recall actually who, what, what it, the post was, but it got me thinking. Somebody had, uh, somebody had uh, asked what their what one's favorite uh, werewolf movie of 1981 was. And I'd never really thought about that before. But I'll tell you what, American Werewolf in London is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I immediately knew that that was in 81. And I, so I knew of what, of what they were speaking. of what, and, and then I went through and I saw a lot of people saying The Howling. And I was like, fuck, man, that's kind of crazy to me. Uh, I like The Howling. Uh, but anyway, it got me thinking. And then, so even when I... As I looked into it some more, and I've seen Wolfen, and when I suggested it to you, I'd like to ask the two of you, is this well-worn territory, or is it just kind of coincidental that I found this on a, on a, on a post, and then I started thinking about it a lot? You know, I, I'm going to mention it, because like after you suggested it, it's like, man, why has no one else salt or talked about the werewolves of 81? Because, like... You know, I always knew The Howling and American Werewolf came out the same year. I forgot about Wolfen, and I forgot about the the lesser of the 
the four, which is Full Moon High, which we'll talk a little bit about. And then my friend Brian Collins, who is uh, used to write for um, birth, death movies, and now he occasionally writes for Fangoria. I saw him posting about him, like, so I wrote him as like, hey, are you working on a Werewolves of 1981 piece? It's like, yes, I am. I was like, cool, we're doing a podcast. So I want to give a shout out to Brian because he's going to have a piece on this very topic. In a, I'll tell you what, I can guarantee you that's the, what I read. Yeah. I mean, Brian's a really good dude. I actually, Brian came out and hosted a Void screening, I guess, year one, when we did um, Severin's Restoration of Kathy's Curse, which is a Canucksploitation kind of like killer, demon-possessed child, sort of exorcist ripoff, sort of just weird little girl with a evil dial. Called Kathy's Curse. Kathy's Curse. There's two... There's two cuts of it. There's the director's cut, and then there's the U.S. cut. And when you watch the U.S. cut, the movie makes no fucking sense. <laughs> and then you watch the director's cut, it makes slightly more sense. <laughs> it, it's worth checking out because it's just weird. And it has one of the best line readings when, like, the little girl's, like, possessed ghost, like, starts attacking a medium. And it's like, medium? How about extra rare piece of shit? Or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a top... It, it's it's quality cinema from our neighbors of the north. So definitely worth checking out if you want to add that to your queue. I think it's on either Shutter, might be on Amazon Prime too. Well, I'm feeling compelled to watch that, yes. <laughs> but like, you know, until you brought it up, it's just like, I forgot, like, 81 was the year of the werewolf. All of this has kind of got me thinking, and as I've been thinking about this, uh, I'm just, I, I guess I'm just kind of a werewolf guy. I don't think I ever really thought of myself as such, but I, I, like, I guess I like, I really like a good werewolf story. Now you're no stranger to writing concept albums. Is this you telling us that you have a werewolf concept album down the line? I should, I'll, let me, let me play around with that. <laughs> <laughs> so you, everyone can thank me now when that record comes out or send me hate mail. I don't know. I, the, where is like, I don't want to go off track here, but the obvious and heavy allegory of werewolf movies, I just think are, it's a bit more fun to me than I suppose the vampire trope. And I love vampires too, actually. And I love witches. I kind of love them all, I think. But, uh, I think I like the, I don't know. There's a lot to there's a lot to work at. And what's interesting about the movies today is I think that they all uh, do they not all kind of tackle different concepts of uh, werewolf allegory. I it seems I kind of I kind of think they do. But this all has me thinking about one that's kind of the most obvious, but also a great one is Ginger Snaps. Ginger Snaps is a really good one. I mean, we could probably and don't feel feel bad about getting off topic because. We habitually get off topic. Sure. Usually pretty bad. <laughs> so if you got a tangent, go for it because one of us is going to have one too at some point. It's kind of a shame because when I think of werewolf movies, I feel like 81 was like the peak year where there was like really, really great werewolf movies. And I think Ginger Snaps is another great one. But like, I think it might have to do with budget because a werewolf is more expensive to make than say, uh, a vampire, you just put some fucking teeth in someone and make them pale. They're a vampire. I think werewolves, because of the transformation and like, it's 
someone's going to be in a suit or like any any version of a werewolf, even the old Lon Chaney one where they just basically did dissolves and had like hair glued to his face. It's still labor intensive. Yeah, it's really tricky. And so I, that's what, yeah, that's a fascinating, tricky thing about the werewolf genre is that people are going to expect uh, some some big special effects in it. And if you don't hit that, well, you don't have to hit that, you know? And actually even Wolfen um, is a case in point for that. We can get into that. But that's like, that's a dangerous, that's kind of dangerous territory, right? If you're going to do, to do like a very low budget werewolf movie, you better have a great script. As in, yeah. as in if you're going to do it so low budget that you only show uh, the, you know, like blinking eyes or, you know, eye, you know lit, lit eyes in the, in the forest then uh, you better have a great script. I think that's why there's not a lot of great werewolf movies because there's not a lot of great werewolf scripts. And I think, thankfully, for the most part, the ones we're going to be, the main three we're going to talk about. And we'll get into, again, we already stated why we're not talking about the fourth one so much. But they're all, I, I agree with you, they're all unique approaches to, like, you know, werewolf tropes. And they cover a lot of bases. And... You know, you get a political one, you get a really dark and like kind of sinister, like, I'd say new age, like TV era. And then you got like being being an outsider, becoming a bigger outsider in a foreign country kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Lots of room for metaphor with werewolves. Yeah, which makes it which is great. And I just think maybe I just find it. I'm just going to keep comparing it to the vampire, which the vampire is so popular. And Mm -hmm. I think I just find the 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 metaphor the allegory of the werewolf just a bit more fascinating because <clears throat> it's about uh that the humans are animals right it's a, i mean mm-hmm. mostly it comes down to like the human being is actually an animal it's and we are we've become enlightened and we think that we're something greater than the werewolf that we are they all kind of will be, they're all somewhat about that i think right i was going to say like comparing vampires to werewolves and i know like a lot of movies have vampires versus werewolves like twilight that whole fucking series is like werewolf gang or west side story version of like werewolves versus vampires or something like that maybe not west side story because i don't think anyone sings in those movies i've never seen them so i'm just just guessing here they do the snapping though (laughs) i man you almost sold me on watching them now is it like fucking vampires and werewolves like (laughs) breaking this song jesus christ man that that is something that I don't think has happened is the werewolf musical. Hmm. A lot of cross genres, but it's probably a reason for that. It's probably because musicals are complicated to make, and werewolves movies are complicated to make and are very effects heavy. That's probably why there's not one. Well, let's uh, yeah we keep skirting around f- f- full moon high, but actually why don't we just like why don't we just cross that off the list real quick? So I had not I for I was not aware of that this one, and so and uh, as you had kind of suggested to me, like maybe it's not totally worth watching, and I I ended up taking on about the first half hour of it, and yeah, it's not very good. I don't want to totally denigrate it or anything like that, but it's the 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 wacky hijinks of the comedy does get kind of a get kind of tired there this is the biggest the best takeaway from and, and so it's so full moon high which is essentially a pre-teen wolf teen wolf it's teen wolf you know i mean it's that's and so i think that's in the annals of cinema history i think that's interesting probably right is that it is and although i'm sure there's other teen teen wolves before teen wolf you know yeah i mean that's kind of 
it's all based off of I don't know which movies those were in the 50s but I'm sure there was I was a teenage werewolf yeah the Michael Landon ones were kind of the precursors to like this one and obviously Teen Wolf yeah but what I found interesting about it is that this in it's 1981 it's uh its name is so it's Adam Arkin is the main kid correct Mm -hmm. and I don't know if either of you you know took a quick peek at it you know revisited it in the last couple weeks but I had not seen it before and what struck me for being a werewolf movie in 1981 is I thought Adam Arkin's uh character and sensibility and humor was very similar to David Naughton in American Werewolf in London and yeah go ahead no, I was going to say, that's kind of an interesting point, because, like, all these movies were in production pretty close to each other, so no one really knew what they were doing. And, like, you know, I, I'm not trying to shit on Full Moon High completely, because it is directed by one of the great genre filmmakers that ever lived, which is Larry Cohen. And Larry Cohen is a funny motherfucker. If you watch the stuff, or God Told Me To, or, like, any of his exploitation movies, there's humor in it, and it's really funny. This is, like, the one time where he did a straight-up comedy, and granted, it's more in that campy airplane mode. Yeah. And it, it just kind of falls flat. And, th- I mean, that's that's the main thing. Like, we were talking about parodies of 81 or the early 80s. Obviously, we talk about it. But, like, as a werewolf movie, like, it hits the tropes, obviously. And it's definitely more in tune to the 50s or even going back to the Lon Chaney one from the 40s. It just... I, I guess it's just more or less like those kind of like parody campy movies don't really date well, which is what happened to this. But, you know, what else it has going for? Like it has Adam's dad, Alan Arkin, in it for a brief cameo. It has it has Ed McMahon for no fucking reason whatsoever. Yeah, that was weird. I don't know, man. It's I love Larry Cohen. Don't get me wrong. It's just like just overall as a werewolf movie, as a comedy it's not even that great. Like even when they did that, there's a big Larry Cohen documentary that they actually skip over it. Cause one Larry wasn't a big fan of the movie and the filmmakers who made it weren't a fan of this movie either, which is why I didn't want really left it as an option. Like I know we were at least mention it, but like, eh, I, I, I think we said some nice things about full moon high. Yeah. Well, I mean, my impression is it seems to have, it's, it must've played in a lot of theaters. I mean, it had, it's, it had a little bit of a, of a run, I guess, you know, so it's worth, it's, it should be mentioned. If you're talking about werewolf movies of 1981, it is officially a, a werewolf movie of 1981. So there you have it. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I think about is like, since you brought this up, it's like other pinnacle years of like certain genre monsters. Like 81 was the year of the werewolf. 85 was the year of the zombie. Cause that's when reanimator return of living dead and day of the dead all came out. There's some other ones here and there, but like it's again, and this is why I'm glad you picked this topic because like when you think like the two big, like eighties werewolf movies, you always think American werewolf in London. You always think of the howling and we'll get into why those are more intertwined than, say, along with Wolfen, which I think Wolfen's a fantastic movie. But, like, there's a, there's a lot of connections between American Werewolf in London and The Howling, which we'll dive into as we go along. So with that, before we get into our three main werewolves of 81, we're going to take a quick break. But when we return, we're going to have a bad moon on the rise on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Have I got a short lifeline or what? You carry the curse of the pentagram. I've always wanted to go to the pentagon. Pentagram, stupid. Oh, oh. 
What shape is that? The mark of the wolf. Worse than having the mark of the wolf, Tony discovered, uh-oh, he was the wolf. Look, I got some dreaded disease only whispered about in the dark ages, okay? Is that all? A little penicillin clear it up just like that. Oh, no, no. It can't be that severe. I mean, you're running better than ever. Eating better than ever was more like it. <clears throat> never again. I'll never do it again. But whenever the moon was full, he did do it again. And again. And again. Oh, God, what a bummer. Tony Walker became a hunted man. The werewolf. Man. Wolf. Man. Werewolf. The commies turned my son into a wolf. I don't know how they did it. Might have been something in the water. Maybe it was something in the air. All right, calm yourself down now. This is simply a shot to put you to sleep so that when I skin you, it will not be unbelievably painful. No, shouldn't, shouldn't. Shouldn't better. You shot the camera. Full Moon High. Starring Adam Arkin. Ed McMahon. Bill Kirkenbauer, Damond Wilson, Kenneth Mars, Louie Nye, Roz Kelly. Fleas or no fleas, I want to be a woman. Come back here, you big hairy legged coward! Look at all that hair. It's the walkie! Full moon high. I'm in trouble. Shoot him! Put me down! I said, put me down, not throw me down. It's not just another macho football movie. What is that, beer? Is that an alcoholic beverage? Here, explain that to your mother. Full Moon High. It's not just another sleazy high school movie. Full Moon High. It's not just another teenage werewolf movie. It's a bite out on the town. Welcome back. We are talking about the werewolves of 1981 with Tim Kasher here on the Cinematic Void podcast. Up first, we're going to probably talk about what I would consider the the most well-known of the movies we're talking about. Although it's might be splitting hairs at this point. But I think if you ask people outside of the Lon Chaney Wolfman to name a werewolf movie, I think this is the one that everyone's going to name. And it's, of course... John Landis's American Werewolf in London. It stars David Naughton, who was used to be the I'm a Pepper guy from the Dr. Pepper commercials from the 80s. He actually got fired from that gig after he did American Werewolf because they didn't appreciate him doing nudity in this movie. Showed his Pepper. Can't be Dr. Pepper anymore. <laughs> and he was also in one of my favorite, like, I'd say 80s ski sex comedy movies, Hot Dog the Movie. Have you ever seen Hot Dog the Movie, Tim? So long ago, but absolutely. Yeah. Hachi, Hachi Mama. <laughs> and and you'll you'll realize the running bit is I pick like the weirdest movie to tie to everyone's career. <laughs> yeah. Which is why up the movie American Werewolf also stars Griffin Dune, who was in Martin Scorsese's best film After Hours. Another thing about Griffin Dune, he actually directed a little movie about witches in the 90s called Practical Magic. Don't know if you've seen that one, Tim. Yeah, I didn't, I don't know if I knew that he directed that. That's, that's fantastic. I, yeah, lo- I he, love Griffin. 
So he did that. And it also has Jenny Gooder, who was in Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout, which is another fine movie. We're going all over the place. Has John Woodvine, who was in Ken Russell's The Devils. Frank Oz, who's probably best known for being a puppeteer and a director in his own right. He obviously is probably most famous as Miss Piggy and Yoda. He actually has two appearances in um, American Werewolf. He plays a character, I forget what that character's name is, and Miss Piggy appears in the movie too. So Frank gets two for one. And the movie also has a cameo by Rick Mayhall, who if you're fans of British comedy would recognize him from The Young Ones. He's Rick the Anarchist, and he's also Drop Dead Fred. He's one of the chess players in the movie. But as we've kind of talked about before we went on break, the real star of the movie is Rick Baker's Phenomenal Special Effects, which won the very first Academy Award for Special Effects. It, they more or less created this award because I forget what movie came out the year before that people were like kind of complaining. It's like, wow, this is a great movie. The effects are good, but like there's no effects category. So they created one and Rick won the first one. Rick is also the only person to win Academy Awards for werewolf movies. He won it for this one and he won it for the remake of The Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro as well. Wow, cool. I forget how many Oscars Rick has, but he's got probably more than any human actually needs. <laughs> I, th- I think he's got like eight or so at this point. I wonder if, uh, when you mentioned that about the, I had forgotten that uh, tidbit about the Oscars. Uh, one that popped in my mind and maybe popped into your minds as well is uh, 70, it's 79, right? Is uh, Alien. And that would have been a big progression into visual effects. And then, yeah, and then 80 probably had something too, right? I'm trying, I can't remember what the movie was in 80 that like, it was, it was kind of one of those more serious Oscar bait kind of genre movies. I could look it up, but like on this podcast, we, if I don't have it written down or Nick doesn't have it written down, we ain't looking shit up. So that, that is what Google is for. God damn it. And obviously we're not using it during this podcast, but you know, alien, cause you got to think exorcist with Dick Smith in the early seventies, you had like. Basically, because of Dick Smith, it kind of opened the doors for people like Rick Baker. Because Rick Baker was like a student of Dick Smith. Mm. Rob Bottin, who went on to do The Thing and did the effects for The Howling, was a protege of Rick Baker. So it all, all those effects guys kind of like got their starts and worked together. And you had Tom Savini in Pittsburgh doing the Romero movies and stuff like that. So it, it was basically the end of the 70s and into the 80s was the beginning of the real effects boom. Yeah. The thing being a huge part of that too, huh? Wow, yeah. The thing, the thing became huger later and down the line because it. I guess we can talk about it a little bit. The the thing came out in '82, which was considered the biggest year of sci-fi in American cinema history. Because I think you had, maybe not sci-fi, but genre kind of big genre movies. Because I think Poltergeist came out that year, um, Road Warrior came out that year, obviously The Thing, E.T., Tron. Like, 82 was the big, like, science fiction, like, kind of genre year. That was the other year I was thinking about, other than 85. So, but that's when, like, shit was popping. People were going, like, how big can we make effects? How insane can we get? And it's kind of what I miss in movies now. It's like, I know some movies are getting back to practical effects, but I I assume it's more budget and time, and no one wants to sit around and, like, be in six hours of makeup or stage, like, a really complicated effect anymore. I don't know, but... 
I love that shit. Yeah, like, let's get back to practical effects. And don't you think that, uh, I, I, I had this thought, like, a few, I don't know, if, I don't know, maybe a year ago or so, that An American Werewolf in London would be an amazing remake. Really touchy, because I really think the first one's perfect. It's like, does it have to be remade? But let's just say you remake, do a remake of American Werewolf, and you do all practical effects, just like, because you, you know, and, and it'd be such a, I think that would be such a great idea. And then I look it up and I see that it's already being in consideration with John's son, I believe. His name's Max Landis. Yeah. Is that right? It's been in hot water, though, so. He is boiling at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that version of the American Werewolf is going to ever happen unless people get their brains erased at this point. Unless we do it, fellas. All right. <laughs> Universal, you hearing this? For those who haven't seen American Werewolf, which I think is pretty impossible at this point, but we always give a little plot synopsis here. So this is your plot for American Werewolf. Two American college students are on a walking tour of Britain and are attacked by a werewolf. One is killed, the other is mauled. The werewolf is killed, but but reverts to its human form and the local townspeople are unwilling to acknowledge its existence, which I always thought was great. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. The surviving student begins to have nightmares of hunting on all four feet, and at first he finds his friends, or his friend, start reappearing, and along with other recent victims of people that he's killed as a werewolf. And they're basically telling him, please kill yourself, so that ends the curse, so we can go on to the other world. But this student, this one played by David Naughton, doesn't want to quite kill himself because he likes living. Although... The werewolf portion of it is kind of making it more difficult. So, Tim, when did you first see American Werewolf in London? Oh wow! You know, I that's uh, if it feels like something that's <clears throat> excuse me, it feels like a movie that's just been a part of my essence my entire life. I was born in '74. It came out in '81, as we've been talking about. I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I bet I saw it in about uh, my cousin and I, my cousin David and I were big horror fans, even as young children. I bet I saw it around, uh, I bet I saw it on VHS around uh, as soon as I could, you know, even though despite it being R, um, I bet I saw it in like 84 or so. Like this was a weird title for Universal because they actually sold the home video rights to it for years and didn't get get it back until like the mid 2000s. Hmm, wow. Like it, it went through like all the bigger, like, you know, VHS labels like Magnum and trying to think of what other ones it was on but like it it just floated around like universal kind of weirdly disowned it universal had a weird period in the 80s like they got big in the genre stuff again the biggest they'd gotten into it since like maybe the original universal monsters heyday and then you're just like yeah we're done which is why like when monster squad came out from a different studio they're like hey are you cool if we use these monsters that are sort of like your famous monsters like nah we don't care now, not so much with um, Lee Winnell doing a really, really, really great reimagining of the Invisible Man. So I think Universal's getting back into their monsters. But like, for a certain point, Universal's like, we're too classy for horror. But then they have their Halloween Horror Nights at the Universal Studios at, in L.A. and um, Florida. So I, I guess they had to change the heart. But out of I think out of the three main movies we're talking about, this one probably might have had the biggest budget. Wolfen might have had a little bit more because that was, I guess, trying to be a serious thriller. Interesting enough, 
John Landis wrote this his first draft of the script in the late 60s when he was in Yugoslavia as a PA on Kelly's Heroes. And what really inspired him to write it was he saw some gypsies performing a ritual on a dead body so it wouldn't come back from the dead. And he's like, wow, I never, I don't know what I would do if I was conf- confronted by the undead. So he wrote a film about it. Like, he th- he's like, I can't handle this shit, so I'm going to get my neurosis out and write about it. And the script sat for years, mostly because a lot of people are like, eh, I don't know if horror and comedy work that way. Because, like, having seen the movie, it's very tonally very funny and very scary and violent. Which, I, I'm pretty sure there's been movies that have towed that line before, but, like, this might have been, like, the first one where it's, like, goes hard comedy, then goes hard horror, and then back and forth, and does it pretty seamlessly, I think. Getting back to your impressions on it, so we talked about when you first saw it. What are your thoughts on it now as you've kind of revisited or rethinking about it? Uh, honestly, for this movie, it just gets... It, I can't... I, my praise isn't high enough. It can never be high enough. I, It's... <clears throat> I, it was something I think I enjoy, I immensely enjoyed as a child and as an adult. I I do vaguely remember at some point in my twenties, kind of giving it a re you know revisiting it and recognizing that it was just really a a work of art in in, in my mind. And I've watched it you know at least once, if not a, a few times a year ever since. I just I I adore this movie. That's that's pretty amazing. It's you know like I I know a few other people that like American Werewolf is their kind of go to. I don't want to say comfort movie. Maybe it's your comfort movie. I don't know. So basically, John was stuck with the script he wanted to make. It but he basically couldn't get an opportunity until he had a trio of comedy hits back to back to back. He did Kentucky Fried Movie, Animal House, and The Blues Brothers. And basically, after all three of those were like each one more successful than the next. He basically had the clout to say, this is what I want to make. You can't stop me. And for years, he had been talking with Rick Baker on doing this movie. He's like, I got this werewolf movie. And Rick's like, let me know. I want to do it. Because Rick Baker had done Schlock with John Landis, which was Landis' first movie, which had a giant ape. The other thing Rick Baker is probably well known for outside of werewolves is his giant apes. Because he he actually played the King Kong in the, the 70s King Kong remake. Like, he, he's the King Kong in the suit. And I, I'm pretty sure he's done some other ape stuff. And I think he even appears in the Peter Jackson Kong, King Kong remake. He's one of the, like, fighter pilots that shoots at Kong. Like, Rick Baker loves werewolves and giant apes. Landis had been talking about making American Werewolf for years. And then when he finally got the money and went, was getting ready to, like, to make the movies, he calls up Rick. He's like, all right, we're doing this fucking movie. Rick's like, whoops. Because Rick Baker was already starting work on another werewolf movie that was coming out in 1981. He was the original effects artist for The Howling. Amazing! There it is. What happened was, is Landis was so pissed at him, he basically guilted Rick to leave The Howling to go work on American Werewolf. And was kind of bitter that he was even working on another werewolf movie. But, you know, I I think at the end of the day, they made off well enough, because, like, I... Again, I know Landis has a lot of other comedy hits, but I think his signature movie is still American Werewolf, and it's largely thanks to great cast, but also those fucking effects, which still hold up pretty damn well overall. So 
Baker left the Howling and basically put his protege, Rob Oteen, in charge of it. And we'll talk a little bit more about Rob Oteen in the Howling when we get there. But, I don't know. I guess we can talk about, like, really the biggest star of this movie, which is those effects. And, you know, do you remember your first impressions of seeing that big transformation scene, Tim? Uh, I don't know if I recall... uh... But don't didn't we all the we we were able to see those effects over and over again over the years, anytime we watched uh, documentaries on uh, on great horror effects. Yeah, because yeah. that's always been kind of the crown jewel. I think that's always been my impression. It's been the crown jewel of uh, of us of horror effects. So I don't. I actually think that I was more affected and more impressed by the visual, by the uh, transformation w- upon watching it on a, uh, some kind of a, you know, one of the compilation docs that, uh, that touched upon it. I mean, that's fair because like, it's definitely like, if you're doing like a greatest horror movies of all time, when you get to American werewolf, you're showing that transformation scene and it's phenomenal. And, what I think makes it works work really well is Landis had certain aesthetics he wanted for the transformation scene. He wanted to be as painful mm. as possible. The feel is painful because like if your body's stretching and contorting and like, you know, transforming into a giant hairy beast, it shouldn't be easy. Like he wanted to get away from like which was traditionally how werewolves are created, is like dissolves. Like you have an actor sit in the same spot, you do dissolve, they got a little more hair on their face, then they got teeth, then they got some black around their eyes and that kind of stuff, and he just wanted to push the limits of what could be done. He also wanted to do it in light. So when you watch the transformation scene, it's well lit, you can't really hide shit, so it's there, it's it's really like, it's a testament to like how he directed it, how he envisioned it, and how Rick Baker pulled it off, because like, that's a perfect combination of like artists combining their talents to make something really phenomenal. There's a great moment. You're going to know the moment uh, during the transformation nearing or, or probably about midway through the transformation where David Naughton is still David Naughton before he's actually just completely a werewolf. And he uh, gives that look into the camera in, scre- oh. in screams. And I, I'm sure that many people find that to be uh, a bit cheesy but I think it's a nod to classic horror, and mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's fantastic. I think it's so. I think it was a really. I think it was kind of a bold decision to make, because uh, it is does come off a little cheesy, and I think it's so cool. I think it totally pays off. I I agree with that because like it's you know it there's definitely a cheekiness to the transformation as well, you know. Now, Nick, I believe you're also a very huge American Werewolf fan, right? I am. I am. I, I definitely used to put this on to go to sleep to, which is like, it's not like it's a boring movie, but it's, again, it's a comfort movie. So you just throw it on. And I've seen the first half an hour of this movie fucking a hundred <laughs> times straight up. Um, but yeah, absolutely love it. Of course, the the effects. I love, I love how it moves back and forth so seamlessly uh, between the horror and the comedy aspects. Like it's just, it'll cut scene and it'll be like a phone ringing or something. It'll just like scare the shit out of you. Like like a good, legitimate jump scare that was like earned. Yeah. 
I mean, you get ultra-violent werewolf maulings, and then you got David Naughton running around naked at a zoo. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it, it's like your extremes of very broad comedy and very graphic horror. And, you know, we were talking about the transformations and, like, the final werewolf, but, like, I think there's some really, really great effects that, like, I know people know and talk about, but I'm talking about Griffin Dune's, like, decaying zombie effect, and as well as the werewolf Nazi sequence, because those are... Like, what Griffin goes through in that movie and the way he just decays as well as, like, all the other, like, victims. Because, like, he starts out as kind of a zombie and then eventually he's just, like, a skeletal puppet, like, towards the end. It's really well done. It's really effective. And that Nazi werewolf sequence is just fucking scary. So scary. Very scary for David Dalton, too, because apparently the, the people that were in the werewolf masks had the knife to his throat. Like, they used a real knife in one of the shots, and, like, they couldn't see him at all, so that this guy's just waving a fucking knife at his throat, and he's like, please don't kill me. For my... So that's one of the scariest parts of the movie. For my money, the absolute scariest part of the film is uh, David Naughton uh, scowling out in the woods in the dream sequence. Yeah. Apparently that that him in the woods and I think the I think he said the transformation in the bedroom or in the apartment or whatever were the two toughest scenes for him. Like I always forget about like that weird like him in the woods dream sequence. It's really Yeah, it's it's damn, it's good. Another scene I just love to give I'd love to give props to cuz it's one of my favorites in the movie is the very now famous uh subway scene. Oh yeah, that that is an excellent set piece for like any movie. Like the way they build it up, like the, the cross cutting between like werewolf point of view and the guy running and all that stuff. Like it's, I mean, there's there's some great set pieces, and it's like when the first thing you think about is that amazing transformation. You also got to realize, and we talk about it, it's like you have to have a good script, and like the script is full of like great comic beats, really great like terror scenes, and like. That, that, the 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 tube scene is like really really like. It's just it's kind of haunting. And it's really fucking scary because like, every time I watch that scene, I get put in that person's shoes and like running for my life. It's like what do you do? Because really there ain't much you can do. We can talk about like some other kind of weird facts or trivia for this movie. First one, which I just find weird that any movie does it, but this movie did it. And I think it was more for the performances than the effects and stuff was the movie was shot in sequential order. Oh, wow. Which you really wouldn't think. They basically went from like the opening and the, the moors and all that stuff to like the end. It was shot chronologically. And... I'm surprised they let it happen, but, like, you know, at that point where Landis was, Landis was, like, on the upswing. And granted, like, that ended up being a little short-lived because of what happened on the Twilight Zone movie, even though he had a bunch of other hits after that with Eddie Murphy, obviously. But, like, you know, I don't think, like, a director now, like, on a big studio movie is like, you know what? I want to shoot in order. Mm-hmm. Like, that ain't <laughs> happening. But... They did on this one. The other thing is, in order to get an R rating, none of the werewolf attacks were toned down, but the things that were cut were the sex scene with Jenny Aguder and David Dalton in the shower. They trimmed that up a bit. And there was a 
there was a hole in Griffin Dune's neck as he's eating, and like a piece of bread falls out of it. So they made him cut that out. What they kept of his neck, though, I mean, it's gruesome. It's it's really gnarly. Actually, it's one of the it's great effect. I mean, it it's funny. Like the two things the censors had problems with, the sex scenes too long in this werewolf movie, and can't can't see anything falling out of that dude's neck. Like that that was the line. Uh, the porno film in the movie is called See You Next Wednesday, which is a running gag that's in a lot of Landis's films. You'll either see, like, a movie theater marquee or a poster or a billboard that says, like, See You Next Wednesday. So, like, that that's his running gag or MacGuffin or whatever you want to call it. Landis actually got that from, that's a line from uh, 2001. It's uh, Dr. David Bowman talk, talking on the phone, I think, to his parents or something like that. He says, see you next Wednesday. Yeah, and that... And he's ran with it like every movie since. This is interesting. And when I looked it up, it's like, really? That's it? Um, Elmer Bernstein, who was the composer on this movie, only made only seven minutes of his music is actually used in the movie. Like composed music. And that's like, really? And I think he made a bunch of cues, but like Landis ended up not using everything, but just those seven minutes. Like he wrote a cue for the transformation scene that Landis ended up like dropping out and putting the song in for mm-hmm. all the songs featured in the movie have the word moon. However, there were two songs that Landis was not allowed to use. The first one was cat Stevens moon shadow because Stevens had converted Islam and didn't want his music associated with a horror movie. All right. When you think that like of Harold and Maud with all those like, great like bud court fake death scenes right Eh, i could see it but i guess different world and the other one he couldn't use he wanted to use the bob dylan version of blue moon but this was during dylan's christian phase so dylan didn't want his song in an r-rated movie wow so religion just really rearing its head for both of those cues and he also wanted to use the Elvis version of Blue Moon, but like that was more with like Colonel Parker and stuff like that. Wouldn't license any Elvis music mm-hmm. for the movie. Mm-hmm. So that that I mean that was also kind of common, but like the Cat Stevens and Bob Dylan one, I just thought was kind of weird because it was both like religion, religious reasons, which makes it which makes it funnier that Michael Jackson hired John Landis to make Thriller because I think Michael Jackson at that time, or as Thriller was coming out, had converted to being a Jehovah Witness. Really? Oh, God. Well, we're covering all the different religions here on the Cinematic Void podcast today. I was just thinking back to Nick, you had mentioned Thriller, and I was just thinking that, that um, you know, that iconic uh, turning to the camera that uh, David Naughton does during the, trans- during the transformation, doesn't, don't they make a point to do that with Michael Jackson too, doesn't he? Yep. In, in Thriller? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's a it's a nod to the movie. I wonder if Michael Jackson personally asked for that, if that was Landis's touch or a little bit of both. You know. That I, I I was just gonna say I I didn't know until you guys said it that Landis actually did Thriller too. Now I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of blown away by that. And friend of the void Mick Garris, who went on to direct the um t- original TV version of the the Stand, as well as Critters Two and. He also did Sleepwalkers. He has a little cameo in Thriller as well. He's one of the zombies. Funny. <laughs> which, which is funny because he also has a cameo in The Howling as well. <laughs> wow. Mick got around, which is why, like, incidentally enough, years later when, uh, I don't remember if you remember the TV show Masters of Horror. It was like a Showtime show. 
that Mick Garris produced. He he actually had a episode directed by Landis and an episode directed by Dante. And he actually holds or was holding which spawned the show was he do a Masters of Horror dinner. So we get all the horror directors and icons together. So it'd be like Stuart Gordon, Joe Dante, you know, Toby Hooper when he was still alive, Wes Craven, John Carpenter. They all have a dinner. So that's they had these dinners and they spawned a TV show off of that. Love it. And Larry Cohen too. Can't forget Larry because we did talk about him. Yeah. Now, here's the weirdest piece of trivia I read, and I'm gonna say it, and then I want all three of us to imagine this version. So the producers originally were hoping Landis would cast Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi as the leads because of the success of Blues Brothers. Now imagine American Werewolf with Aykroyd and Belushi. Wow. That's tough, but, you know, in an alternate world, Landis did a great job with this, and I think he could have made it work. The hardest one is figuring out which role Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi would play. Like, who would be what? Would Dan Aykroyd be Naughton? Would John Belushi be Griffin Dune? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I think absolutely. It's immediately the way I saw it. Yeah, I think that's the only way. Yeah, because Griffin uh, Griffin's the comic relief, and that's Belushi over Aykroyd. Yeah, I agree with that. I was trying to picture it the other way, and I just really couldn't. Like, I could almost see this as a thing. But the reason why Landis didn't want to do it, he wanted to have kind of more unknowns, just so it didn't have that baggage. Because if you coming off Blues Brothers, and then you have a werewolf movie with Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, I think the expectations coming in is you're going to get Blues Brothers with a werewolf. Yeah, and the more the more I'm thinking about it, I think that it, they could have made. I think the movie could have been good, but I don't know if we'd be talking about it right now. Funny enough, the the other reason why Aykroyd and Belushi weren't in it is they were shooting Neighbors at the same time American Werewolf went in production, and they actually wanted Landis to be the director of Neighbors. So, and he wanted to do American Werewolf instead, and I think he made the right choice. I actually like Neighbors, but I I think when you talk about cultural genre milestones. You have American Werewolf in London, and Neighbors is a pretty solid movie. Well, I do think of uh, Dan Aykroyd in the opening of Twilight Zone, and do do you want to see something really scary? And it's that same flash, like like in the woods, of uh, David Naughton's face, you know? Arguably the best, to me, the best part of Twilight Zone is that scene. The Aykroyd scene? <laughs> I think Landis directed the wraparounds on that. I could be wrong about that. And we we famously, or most people famously know what happened on his official segment of that movie. Which kind of, yeah, was not very good. Which, you can if you don't know it, you can Google it. There's actually a book on that whole case. So, I don't know. I feel like I'm now taking everything down quite a bit as we talk about real life trauma, but not trying to bypass it. Just, you know, if you don't know, John Landis was directing his segment Twilight Zone and the there was a helicopter crash that was unsafely handled and it killed two Vietnamese children actors and um, Vic Morrow, for those who don't know. And it was a big court case. It was a big, messy thing, and it pretty much derailed Landis's career from here on out like i said he still had other hit movies but those movies were more hits because of eddie murphy than maybe john landis so to kind of switch tones just like american werewolf i guess i don't know what's everyone's closing thoughts on 
American Werewolf in London. Maybe it would be good to, uh, as we close on any either each of these movies, to just t- consider what I like to. I like to back to the allegory. I like to think. Of, I like to play around with what these movies are about, and I think the American Werewolf in London of these three movies is the most fascinating one. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of different takes of what Landis or you know what like what ultimately this movie's trying to say. Uh, I like to think that to call it an American werewolf in London, it's, it might be a little bit, a little bit of a, this is a stretch, but, but, you know, America is, uh, you know, expats from Britain there. It's, it's the, it's the colonists. Um, and they, they leave and then they come back and they get infected by, a wolf that okay maybe I should just get to the short of it is that I think it's about American culture invading British culture but because the wolf is from the Moors there they recognize that it's actually it's a it's a beast that they created that is man that is some high flutin film criticism there I just watched it a lot of times <laughs> I mean that that's actually a pretty good thesis, and like I can't argue with that. I do want to mention that at one point when they announced production, they were going over to England. I guess there was some UK union rules that they were only allowed to have. Originally supposed to only have four Americans working on the movie, so it was going to be John Landis, Rick Baker, David Naughton, and Griffin Dune, and. The UK hit back. It's like, well, there's other Americans that already live in the UK, so you can recast the Griffin Dune role. And Landis is like, fuck you. It's now American Werewolf in Paris. We're moving there now. And the UK was like, all right, all right, all right, you can have Griffin Dune. <laughs> and then about maybe, was it like 20 years later? I can't remember when it came out. American Werewolf in Paris did eventually come out with no one evolved in the original having any part of it. I saw it once. I actually didn't really see it. I showed up late to a movie, and the guy just let us in, so I watched the last five minutes of American Werewolf in Paris. And I just remember there was a really bad CGI transformation. I'm like, yeah, I'm glad I got in free and only saw the last five minutes. Yeah, I was going to say that is the cardinal sin that kept me from ever really, has kept me from ever really watching that movie is that it's just, it's just CGI laden. And it's like, that's just so disrespectful. To the legacy yeah. of American Werewolf. I mean, what happened was Jurassic Park happened, and so everyone's like, oh, we can do anything now with a computer. But the thing with Jurassic Park was there's still a lot of Stan Winston practical effects in it, and they used CGI sparingly. And no one took that lesson. It, it, spo- it was only supposed to be a tool to get you to do a couple of things. But then, like, everyone's like, oh, fuck it, everything's CGI. Just shoot everyone with green screens. And and it, this has come up many times on this podcast, obviously. But, like, you know, I, I think cinema might be a little worse for that. But, again, I don't think a lot of those, like, those big Marvel movies and stuff like that could happen without CGI. At least in the scope they're planning. Yeah. Yeah, and they've been they've been able to tell bigger stories, and that's so there's a reward there. But boy, CGI sure does get tiresome. I guess we're gonna end here. Forget about CGI because we got more practical werewolf effects coming up on the Cinematic Void podcast. Stay tuned. Yeah.
For the first 23 years of David Kessler's life, he was only human. Then one night he took a walk on the moors. Beware the moonlights. Is David behaving strangely? Are you all right now? I'll let you know the next full moon. Tomorrow night's the full moon. You're gonna change. From the director of Animal House, a different kind of animal, an American werewolf in London, rated R. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into Cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemadness Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. We have been talking about the werewolves of 1981 here on the Cinematic Void podcast. And up next, I'm going to just get this out of the way. This is my all-time favorite werewolf movie. Can't argue it. In fact, I've been basically the last few podcasts this year, I've been going over my tattoos on my right arm. I have a All the Colors of Dark tattoo. I have a fog tattoo, which we just talked about last episode, and I have a howling tattoo as well. Not not that anyone can actually see this podcast, but except for all of us who are just sitting here. But I don't know. So, yeah, no spoiler. It's 1981's The Howling, directed by Joe Dante. It's a It stars Dee Wallace, Patrick McAndee, Christopher Stone, Dennis Dugan, Linda Blasky, Kevin McCarthy, Slim Pickens, who I also have a tattoo of, but... <laughs> this one's from Strange Love, not The Howling. Uh, the great John Carradine, Elizabeth Brooks, Robert Picardo, and the greatest character actor to ever live, Dick Miller. Hey, let's not forget uh, Jim McCrell, who was also the principal in Teen Wolf. <laughs> That's your tie-in. Never miss a chance to talk about Teen Wolf. The, the film was produced by AFCO Embassy, who we talked about at length in the last episode, because they also released The Fog. Already said, directed by Joe Dante, with a script by John Sales, who basically reworked another script by another screenwriter, Terrence H. Winkless, which was based upon a novel by Gary Brander, who I don't think they bothered to read because the movie has nothing to do with the novel it's based on. So so much so that The Howling Part 4 is a faithful adaptation of The Howling novel. Unlike the movie The Howling. What's The Howling for? What's that called? Four is the original nightmare. Yeah, this is the original nightmare because they're adapting the same book that was supposed to be adapted for the first one. Funny. Now, uh, Nick is actually an avid reader, so I didn't, when I asked you this, Nick, have you ever read The Howling? I have not read The Howling. No, that's that's one I missed. Okay, so... Nothing on the howling here, at least on Nothing. what the... Di- <laughs> uh, my understanding is they changed a lot. They changed character names. They changed situations. It's just... Funny enough, um, Howling 2 is actually a book by the same author, and I think he wrote the screenplay for Howling 2, probably because he wasn't happy with what happened to his novel in Howling 1, or one of those. I think he wrote 2 or 3, but like he even changed stuff from his own novel, so go figure. No, no one gives a shit about the Howling novels except for Part Four. Apparently, <laughs> no one, no one takes the prose seriously. Damn it! But you know, John Sayles is one of the probably one of the great indie filmmakers. Now we, 
He also worked with um, previously with Dante because they wrote or he wrote Piranha for him, and then he also did another, I guess, Animal Attack movie. He also did um, Alligator, which stars Robert Forrester, directed by Louis Teague. Before Sales was making Lone Star and things like that, he was cranking out that genre fare. Yeah, I was and... I was surprised to see Sales was a writer on this. That was pretty cool. Yeah, it's. And he actually, he appears in, he does cameo, or did cameo bit parts in other Dante movies. I think he's got a cameo in Matinee with none other than Dick Miller. <laughs> so, uh, a couple other things I want to talk about before we get into the plot. The soundtrack is by Pino DiNaggio, which is one of the great composers. He also did Don't Look Now. He also did Piranha. He did some of the later Argento movies. Really, And he did, obviously, Brian De Palma movies. He did Blowout, and I think he did Dress to Kill as well. Set designs by Robert Burns. Normally, I don't rarely bring up set design, but Robert Burns worked on Texas Chainsaw Massacre and actually recycled some of his props from that movie for The Howling. Wow. And last, but certainly not least, the top-notch effects are by Rob Bottin, who, you know, basically got the gig because Rick Baker left to go do The Howling. Now, for those you who haven't seen it, which seems weird that you're listening to a podcast about these movies without seeing it, but, you know, it happens. After a bizarre and nearly deadly encounter with a serial killer, a television newswoman is sent to a remote mountain resort whose residents may not be what they seem. So, I'm going to ask you, just like for American Werewolf, what was? do you remember the first time you saw The Howling, Tim? Uh, def- not as a... Not as young, uh, but... You know, in the '90s, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm a horror fan, and so I, I would, I, I came, I don't remember the first time watching it, but I, it seemed like it's been with me for a long time. Um, I, I just rewatched it, uh, a couple weeks ago, and I really, to be honest with you, I think that was only maybe like the third time I'd seen it. It, it was, a, it was a good viewing. I was glad to, I was glad to check it out again. Now, Nick, I know you love werewolf movies, which is why you were excited that Tim picked this topic. What are your thoughts on The Howling? Just in high school, I really liked the first two in particular and would, and would rent them often and watch them. Um, I, of course, think The Howling is just like American Werewolf in London. It's, it's if not perfect, damn near it. It, re- it really is. Um, but I, I don't know. American Werewolf is probably better, if I, I guess, if I really have to choose. But... Howling's great, um, but I haven't I haven't watched a lot since the '90s. So I I just rewatched it this past week, and still holds up. Still fucking great. It, it's kind of funny that like you know American Werewolf is I'd still say much more beloved than The Howling. But like at working at the American Cinematheque and the Egyptian Arrow, I I could tell you we've screened The Howling a lot more than we've screened American Werewolf in the last six or seven years, and I. Not sure the reason. Are you the reason? <laughs> no, I, I have no reason. I it it's funny enough. It's like the Howling is my favorite werewolf movie. It's also my favorite Joe Dante movie, and I've never screened it as a void screening. It's played for Beyond Fest. It's played we right before the pandemic hit. There was a it was a combination between UCLA and us, and I think another organization venue that did a tribute to John Sales. So we did a. I think the Egyptian, on Valentine's Day of all days, did a double feature of Piranha and the Howling with John Sayles and um, Joe Dante together, which was really cool. I said this is my favorite werewolf movie, and I'll get into it as we talk about it, but, you know, I think the thing that really kind of 
makes me like this more than American Werewolf and and it's not me trying to be just the dick saying like I like this one better because of this it's just I I love the mix of like Hollywood sleaze so it's like a sleazy LA exploitation movie it it's also a newsroom movie which like I'm a sucker for like if you have if your movie takes place in a newsroom or like a newspaper like I love all the president's men and things like that I you know, I like Network as well. Actually, I should say I love Network. So I lo- love that angle as well. Plus, you get, like, New Age cult stuff in it with the Patrick McNeese, like, you know, r- retreat for werewolves who are trying to be more civil, I guess. And, of course, you get a werewolf movie. So it's like all those things are kind of like what really, really speak to me. And it's just like, I don't know. It's The movie's dark. It's funny, but it's in a different kind of funny thing. It's really mean-spirited, which I know that's not something that everyone looks into a movie, but, like, I think there's a certain quality when a movie is really fucking mean and means it. And this movie is really, really mean. Like, you know, it it's not really a happy ending movie either, which we'll talk about a little bit more here. The other things I like about this movie, it's like, you know, like American Werewolf, there's plenty of puns and references to other werewolf stuff. And, you know, Dante, you know, is an avid film collector. He loves movies. And this movie, like, has a lot of werewolf in-jokes. Like, on a TV, there's like a werewolf cartoon. You see a copy of Allen Ginsberg's Howl on someone's desk. And I think most of the characters, if not all, maybe not all, but a lot of the characters in the movie are named after people that directed werewolf movies, too. Oh, cool. So there's a lot of things. And I guess, and I've already mentioned Dick Miller, but, like, the thing that puts the howling over American Werewolf for me is basically Dick Miller. And I know he's... He's a camp. He's an extended cameo. It's a bit part. It's a character actor part. But goddamn it, I love his bookstore owner character, who's named Walter Paisley, which is a nod from his character from Roger Corman's Bucket of Blood, because Dick worked with Corman, and then when Corman started New World, a lot of the directors that were working for Corman really loved Corman movies, and thus loved Dick Miller. So that's why he was in all the Joe Dante movies and like all that stuff, Alan Arkish, and like things like that. But this. I you know Dixon a lot of stuff. He's in Terminator. That brief scene he's in Terminator where like, hey, you can't do that, and Arnold's like wrong and shoots him. Like iconic fucking scene. I feel like even though Dick is just sometimes just playing Dick Miller in a movie, it just it takes it up a notch. Like I think of things like you know Night of the Creeps where he just <laughs> pops up out of nowhere, and like just any countless Joe Dante movie, it's like you're just waiting for Dick Miller to pop up. Anything from Gremlins. He's actually quite remarkable as the in this. I thought he did a really good job in this. Where I think maybe sometimes other Dick Miller cameos, as you're mentioning, might be a little bit campier. I think it, this is actually really nice. This is a really good role. Sadly, that bookstore I don't think exists anymore, but it used to be on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what where that was, what which one that was. I... Uh... I know they talk about it in the commentary. I, I forget what they tore out and put there in its place, but like, you know, it it's a really good scene. And like, I, I know I'm talking way much about a scene that has no werewolves in a werewolf movie, but like just him going off about like the books and like the customers and like, they're like, do you believe in this stuff? He's like, what do you think? I'm just trying to make a buck here. I take visa American express, that kind of stuff. It It's just so punchy. And the other thing is like, there's, Besides Dick, there's some fun cameos in this movie. Besides all the character actors that I listed earlier, like he, Roger Corman 
is in an early scene where D. Wallace is in the phone booth waiting for the Eddie Quist character to call her. The guy waiting at the phone booth, that's Roger Corman. Cool. And you also get to see Forrest J. Ackerman, who is, you know, created Famous Monsters of Movie Land magazine. He has a little cameo into it. He's in the the Dick Miller bookstore scene. Do you know what? As a as a since you're a lover of howling, you probably remember this and notice notice this. Something I, I was just remembering something I really appreciated about the bookstore scene is that uh and I'm not sure you you can probably tell me what movie they were watching, but I I appreciated that one of the the horror movie that they're watching had the trope it had the trope of like a bookstore scene learning about werewolves like looking through a book learning about werewolves and it was really um, mirroring the actual bookstore scene you know what offhand yeah offhand i don't remember what movie that was i remember they do show the original like wolfman at some point or at least the one scene where like the gypsies kind of like you know talking to lon cheney about like when the you know when the moon is full and that that whole speech it might have been that so yeah maybe it's that i know there's a lot of little nods and here and there throughout this movie which you know like american werewolf is great because they're like you know you're acknowledging where essentially like the werewolves came from but like it's like again they're not doing it how lon cheney jr transformed werewolf this is like big time effects and you know we already kind of hit upon this i guess we're gonna you know kind of have to do a compare and contrast and just talk about American Werewolf and the Howling together. Because I feel like because of the Rick Baker Association, the fact that Dante and Landis were both going up in their career at the same time and basically got doors open because they made these movies. Like, Landis got Twilight Zone, so did Dante. Dante also got Gremlins off the Howling because Spielberg, like, loved the Howling so much. So it's really interesting, like two werewolf movies but they handle the werewolves different and i think when you guess throw out your theories and like you know your deeper thesis on like what does the werewolf mean in this movie i'm really curious to see where you get but i guess the first thing we're going to talk about is the werewolf transformations from the ha- the howling in american werewolf like american werewolf that transformation is all in light the ha- the howling's more in the dark which is traditionally how you do effects because you're trying to like hide wires and seams and shit like that but I think the effects, regardless of how they're shot and presented, are just as good as American Werewolf in the Howling. Uh, well, you're that's coming from a lover of the Howling. I would, and I, and I, and I do think that I, I love that I love this conversation. This is a great pairing. I didn't realize, and nor I guess you didn't realize either, that I don't think you realized that American Werewolf was my favorite werewolf movie, and I didn't realize that Howling was yours. I yep. think that's that makes for good that makes for good uh, good conversation about it and good healthy criticism on both on both sides. The, the, my feeling about the howling, I was really in what made me want to have this conversation was the transformation in the howling. It was it really struck me that they put so much that that there was it was so not not similar. It's definitely not similar to American Werewolf. It's but it but it is similar in the sense that there was a lot of time and energy, a lot of time, money, energy, effort put placed into the transformation. And in, in maybe somebody could just offhand say, like, well, that's a werewolf movie for you. But no, not really, right? We all know that. A lot of no. movies um, will, you know, they can't afford it. Uh, I thought, the, 
I have the high praise for the transformation scene in The Howling, and I'll only say that it would have looked so great and nearly impeccable if it weren't for the fact that American Werewolf exists. American Werewolf in London exists. And the fact that American Werewolf in London exists makes The Howling, sadly, a very strong, effective transformation scene that is that is not as strong to me. And that's my that's my criticism, my take on it. I mean, that's a fair point. And like, I, I like them both. And like, I think they're both different. And like, you know, obviously, obviously, the American werewolf more one is more about the pain of transformation. The one in the the ones in the howling because there's obviously there's the big one, but then you see other sort of partial transformations throughout the movie with uh, because there's American werewolf has one werewolf. Howling has a fucking community of werewolves running around. And, you know, it's yeah, it's picking straws. And, like, you know, obviously the majority of, like, genre fans and horror fans or people that don't even watch horror movies that know movies are going to go with that American werewolf transformation. And that's a fair point. I the, the thing why I, like, think the Howling is just as good is because it had less money than American werewolf that they had to pull off. And I see that. And I, and I, and I totally agree with you. I found it. I find that so impressive. I think that's so cool. I could, I felt like I could sense a certain budgetary limitations in the transformation. And the fact that the transformation is still so effective. It's great. I really don't want to um, denigrate it too much or diminish it. I really do. I am. I'm sincere in saying it's a great transformation scene. If, if only American Werewolf didn't exist, we I would think it was greater. I mean, I think that's why when you talk about like genre filmmakers and signature movies, you know, I think a lot of people consider Landis, American Werewolf, that's his signature movie. Joe Dante, and I love Joe Dante, and I love his films, and he, I think he's probably had one of the more consistent careers out of a lot of people, and that's doing like near kids movies and all that. He never really got, like, that title that is just, like, all his. Because, like, you know, if there was no American Werewolf in London, I think The Howling would be the gold standard werewolf movies. But And then I think Gremlins, which is clearly, you know, a, a phenomenal movie. But it's also got the baggage it's produced by Steven Spielberg. So it's like, I think Dante never really... He's made, I'd say, tons of A-plus, 10 out of 10 movies, or 9 out of 10, or whatever criteria you want to go with. But he never got that full-on, like, iconic signature movie that when you first say his name... Because when you say Joe Dante, you start like, oh, the Burbs, oh, this or that. Like, you go off a list of movies. When you say John Landis, American Werewolf. When you say John Carpenter, it's either Halloween or The Thing. When you say Wes Craven, it's A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I just think like when the way people organize like filmmakers and you get into the Artur Artur theory, if we want to get very heady about this, it's like Joe made some incredible movies, but none of them get considered as like the signature one that takes it over the top. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, I I'll just give him I'll give him more credit that. And it's it's all you know. It's we all get our, we all receive our information differently, but I do think of Gremlins as a Joe Dante film more so than a Steven Spielberg thing. And it, but you know you're probably right that the public at large might think that might be confused and think that's a Steven Spielberg movie or something. You know. 
Yeah, I mean, there's no debate that Joe Dante was the director on it. Like, the movie's quintessentially Joe Dante. But I think when people think of Gremlins, you don't think of the director. You just think of the movie. Whereas, like, if you think of American Land... That's more the point I'm getting at. When you say American Werewolf, you instantly, like, John Landis, Rick Baker, and all that. And I think it's a shame that, like, Joe isn't appreciated in that kind of spectrum. Because, like, you know, the Howling's great, Piranha's great... The Burbs is phenomenal. Like, he's made a shit ton of really phenomenal movies. And, you know, he worked on all around. Like, you know, he started as editor for Roger Corman. He had his high ups. He got a shit ton of money to make Gremlins 2 and made one of the weirdest big studio movies ever. The, you know, really grand praise for Joe Dante, Back to the Howling, is... This viewing I just did the other week, you know, again, the transformation is really great. And um, and that struck me. But what struck me the most was like the directing. And it really made me uh, proud of Joe Dante. I was like, damn, Joe Dante is like, he's a great horror director. There is, uh, I guess, just a couple scenes in particular. But the m- most importantly to me is, and you'll be able to feed me, I think, the the actor's name, Nick and I were just joking around actually about, cause it's the, it's in your screensaver, the screen behind you. It's the, it's the woman. And the, so it's the buddy who comes to um check things out. It's um the woman. It's Belinda Blasky. She was also in the um, Piranha, the previous Joe Dante, John Sales joint. Gotcha. So her, it's her big, um her big scene where she goes out, to, she's kind of researching uh, the Island or it's not the island, but she's researching the um, kind of resorty area, the Santa Barbara area, and and then she goes to that cabin. That scene is remarkable, mm-hmm. um, where she starts being attacked, um, you know, by the mysterious werewolf. We never, yeah, I guess we do eventually end up seeing, but it's it's just a really really well well done scene. That um, I kind of I I may may have even paused the film and just had to stop to reflect on how well it was done. And then the other thing is just how remarkable the opening um, scenes of the movie are, um, which are actually all shot. We're actually all shot pretty cool, just kind of around the corner from me. I kind of live in that neighborhood. I mean, that's the other thing I like about the Howling is like I'm a sucker for movies that are shot in L.A. or at least partially, and you get to see locale like. Some of my favorite movies are like Savage Streets or like Angel or like, you know, the kind of like the the scuzzier L.A. sleaze movies. But you get to see Hollywood Boulevard in like prime 80s and you get to see all those theaters that like kind of got a second life, you know, on um, because of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Quentin had a couple of those like brought back, or at least they're neon. But you get to see a lot of those that were still operational. There's one movie where it's... um. Don't answer the phone where you can briefly see the Egyptian during the Alien premiere. Cool. Um, did Cinematic Void post about that the other day? or I, I posted probably back in, I think I posted in March because I was showing Angel. So I was like, I was just talking about all this, all the sleazy like LA like trash movies that you can see the boulevard and like that's one of the few where you actually see the egyptian like they steal a shot like they're doing a drive by you see the line for alien outside which is really cool yeah that's cool i had not seen that older um that older um storefronts a bad word for it but bad term for it but that older um facade for um the egyptian is really cool yeah it i think that's when it became it might have been the egyptian 3 at that point where they had like 
became a multiplex where like the arena cine lounge or where it used to be like on the side that was like one of the three theaters i remember when i did killer clowns from outer space and had the kyoto brothers there they're like yeah we premiered right down there like they played in like one of the, the dink theater at the old egyptian i i mean again this is as we're getting off topic, but like, and I should mention yesterday was alien day, which is probably why you saw it. I'm, I'm sure the Americans, I'm sure the Cinematheque posted that picture of the alien premiere. Actually, you're right. It was American Cinematheque who posted it. Yep. And funny enough, someone like they had this, they had a styrofoam space jockey in the courtyard at the time that someone like dropped a cigarette and set it on fire. So like, that's another story, but <laughs> lots of crazy stuff happened on Hollywood Boulevard, including the space jockey catching fire. And and you thought the weird like guy that's playing Chucky that's asking for a dollar to get a photo was the most terrifying <laughs> part of it. But uh, I guess back to the howling. We were talking about locale and all that, and like I, you said, where like they shot the other stuff was it like you said Santa Barbara or like kind of going north Car- California? That was I lobbed that out. I actually don't know. It just it just had that like Santa Barbara feel to it. But I actually while watching it, I did look it up, and I, I don't remember what it was now. But it, it's something along the coast north of north of LA. You can actually go visit it because I know on the Howling Blu-ray that Shout Factory put out, they did one of those horror ha- horrors hallowed grounds where like this guy Sean Clark goes and visits different locations. So he went to the Howling one. So they went to Little Hollywood Boulevard, but they went to like where all those cabins and the woods are. I think it's a still functioning like kind of campground or summer camp or something like that. Funny. Another thing to do once the pandemic is done, go visit where they shot the Howling. <laughs> or not. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it's... I, what were we talking about? We were comparing the Howling and American Werewolf. Not really comparing, but just kind of like the, the similarities and the differences, more or less. And another thing that both these movies have is they both have porn theater scenes. True, yeah. Although the American Werewolf one is played much more for laughs and little creepiness, where the one in The Howling, which is at that porn shop where D. Wallace goes in and like gets sat down and is getting forced to watch that snuff porn thing, it is, it is a fucking like crazy, like, it's it's probably it's probably the, maybe the actual scariest scene in the movie because it's just like so overtly threatening. Yeah, it's very chilling. And Joe Dante actually shot both of those fake porn loops. Oh, <laughs> which I don't know. It, I mean, they're really effective, but they're it's it's really fucked up and like it it kind of sets a tone where like I think with American Werewolf you still get a sense of the fantastical. Whereas with the howling, it's all dark, and I don't want to say cynical, but I guess maybe cynical is a fair. It is cynical is fair. I mean, it's um they're very aggressive, scary. Uh, I'm not not both. I'm sorry. The American Werewolf is is a total farce. It's a it's such a goofy porn uh, that they're watching, but the one in America, the one in the howling is scary. The 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 pornography is scary stuff film stuff the other thing i think is really effective especially when you get to the nightmare scenes and all that is like the editing like it was the movie was edited by joe dante who like got his start as an editor editing all those like new world picture trailers and it's also edited by mark goldblatt who went on the direct um dead heat in the canon original punisher movie with dolph lundgren years later I think I think mark's still like an active editor and i think he might have worked on piranha too 
as well. Not Piranha Part 2, the James Cameron one, as in the Joe Dante Piranha. So there's no confusion. But, like, the editing is really tight, the way it cuts into those nightmares, and they cut in, like, that TV single glitch thing that they use over and over again. Like, it's really stylized, and it's, like, I don't want to say it's heading towards, like, art movie, but I think it's very artful in what it does. It just, it adds to, like, this darker tone that, you know, American Werewolf has some dark stuff in it, but, like, this movie is, like, not playing around in, like, how cynical and sinister it's going to get. Mark Goldblatt went on to edit um, Terminator, Terminator 2, Starship Troopers, Heavy Hitter. Damn. Hell yeah. He may have edited Piranha 2 then, because, like, that was the, that was the, that was James Cameron's first movie that he got fired off of, and then he got to do the Terminator. Which probably, I guess, was a step up from Piranha 2. I mean, the Piranhas in Piranha 2 were flying, but... <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 Terminator's another movie I love because you get to see lots of, like, weird Glendale and, like, the Valley as well as, like, sketchy downtown L.A. And we already mentioned the Dick Miller cameo. I guess we can talk about a little bit of the differences between these two. And the biggest one was how the werewolves are presented. The for American Werewolf, the werewolf is on all fours, and um, the Howling, they're upright or bipedal. And funny enough, when Rick Baker was working on American Werewolf before American Werewolf actually happened, he envisioned the werewolf being upright. But Landis wanted it on all fours. He's like, I want it to be more like a wolf or whatever. And because he used a bunch of things he planned on using for American Werewolf for the howling that Rob Boutine took, he ended up going the other way and going more with what Landis wanted. Landis wanted more to be more wolf-wolf than actual werewolf kind of thing. And the, the thing about those werewolves and the howling, they all get fucking tall. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> they all got a reach. It's like... I mean, that's what makes it scarier, because when you think Wolfman, you think they're like on the same playing field of you, in a way. And it, it's kind of why I like all these movies we're talking about, the way they approach the werewolf and how they're presented. Like, obviously, the werewolf in American Werewolf is, like, you know, obviously a big beast of a creature. And the howling, they're, like... It's, like, the transformation also carries over those each person's personality as they transform, too. Which is kind of the other difference. Like, when David Naughton becomes a werewolf, it's kind of similar to the werewolf that attacked him in the beginning. Whereas these in the Howling, they all like, you know, you have Slim Pickens as a fucking werewolf. You have John Carradine as a werewolf, who's apparently mad about it, <laughs> being a werewolf. And like, I want to die. He's like, stop drinking, John. That's the other thing. It's just like the way those werewolves are handled. And, you know, it's it's kind of why I like the Howling a little bit more, because the werewolves have personality. And like, this is not meant to be disrespectful to American Werewolf. But the end werewolf always reminded me of like a very elaborate very scary Muppet. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, there is a lover as Nick and I are of American werewolf, uh, of like to, to defend the ending, it gets a little bit trickier because there's a, it's a, it's a moment where it becomes a, a love scene between nurse price and a giant dog. <laughs> and so it's it's uh and, and that's a and that's the end of the movie you know that's like that can be a that can be a little bit tricky but i think they for me anyway it's just like well i'm on board that far 
and I don't really even need to feel, I don't even feel the need to make excuses for it. I recognize that it is a, the type of ending that it, some people might kind of, uh, be able to like, uh, you know, shrug, shrug off kind of, of like, well, that was, that was weird. I mean, I think it overall, the American werewolf ending is fine, you know? And it's just like, when I look at the end werewolves, the werewolves you're presented with, because like, you know, because the same thing we talk about the ending of the howling, when Dee Wallace's character turns in the werewolf, it looks like a, you know, a show dog a little bit. Oh, it's so cute though. It's yeah. great. I love it. <laughs> and and that was done intentionally because when they were like, I guess when Rob Oteen and Joe Dante were talking about like, you know, what what each werewolf would look like, they want, again, this comes down to the werewolf personality and like this werewolf should be a little bit nicer and delicate and sweeter. But like before you get to that full, that full and transformation, that, that shot of D screaming and then like those first shots where you see her eyes and the teeth are coming in, really fucking creepy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I mean, that kind of goes back into, you know, the other side of this. I think both movies have downbeat endings. Clearly. Yeah. And but this one just feels a little more brutal. And, you know, I don't I haven't seen anything that like confirms this. It might be on a commentary, it might be in a documentary or something, but like the ending of the howling kind of evokes Christine Chubbock's like on air suicide from nineteen seventy four, which was a yeah. I'm pretty sure it's intentional that that happened, but like it it just it grounds the movie in reality that like when I first saw it, I wasn't prepared for it. It's like, whoa. Like it The movie's really great, and then you have that scene where like basically she gets shot on the air, turning into a werewolf. Which, funny enough, in one of the cutaways, that's where Mick Garris's cameo is. He's on the couch. He's like, what's that? Or something like that. You'd mentioned Network, and I think that that's also... There's some there's a, some sort of homage going there, or, or, or reference point, I think, as well. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think Kevin McCarthy's character in The Howling, which I love Kevin McCarthy. He, like, basically, he was in the original Body Snatchers at... Um, I can't think of his name. Don Siegel directed that Sam Peckinpah was un un uncredited script doctor on, but has a cameo as a I think he's like a bug exterminator or something like that in that in um original invasion of the body snatchers. But like that's why Kevin ended up being in the Piranha or in Piranha and the Howling because Joe was a fan of his from Body Snatchers. But I think his like news like I guess he's the head of the news station is kind of mirroring a little bit of like what was going on with um network yeah he says some funny stuff he also says some really fucked up horrible stuff but that's yeah (laughs) but that's also the old white guy from the 70s who's in charge you know he's a he, he there's a comparison for dante to landis because i always think of him as um his role in the twilight zone who kevin mccarthy He's in the one oh, with he, the kid. Oh, he's, in, he's actually in the Joe Dante one. Yeah, that's right. He's in the one that um, where the little kid has the powers and takes away his like, sister's mouth and stuff. I forget what that one's called. Yeah, I mean, that's Kevin McCarthy again popping up in the Joe Dante movie. I mean, Joe loved using the same actors, which is why like we didn't even really talk about it as um, Robert Picardo. I guess the main, the overt villain, so to speak. Because he's not the only villain, but like he's the upfront one. And like, you know, he, it's just like, 
the line of playing like a serial killer that's also a werewolf that's like into like drawing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, the, the fact that like, now when you first saw the movie, I know, I know this might be memory hazy. Did you realize or get an inkling that like all the people in this community were werewolves and that this was a new age place for werewolves to like eat regular meat, don't kill people. You know, it's just me. I'm not going to be able to answer that correctly because I just don't. I can't remember. You know, because when I rewatched it the other week, I already I knew that. You know, like I already knew how it all worked. But uh, yeah, well, my my experience the first time around, I doubt I knew it. Why would I? I think they lay yeah. it out. I think they lay it out pretty well. That um, that uh, you know they that you wouldn't necessarily necessarily have that hunch right off. I mean, they, definitely on reviewing, it's all set up there, like the John Carradine, like, I don't want to live kind of thing. And then, I mean, the biggest surprise is that Slim Pickens' character is a werewolf. And you don't, because they're out there like, they're like, oh, we got to go find out what's like killing these animals and stuff when they know damn well it's just them. Like, that's the funniest thing. <laughs> it's like, well, we got to keep up this facade. And he's like, the sheriff, but then at the end, you see Slim with like werewolf fangs and like those glowing eyes with a shotgun. It's really unexpected and cool, especially when like you get to the barn scene where like they all, even like Patrick McNee's character is a werewolf, even though I don't think he actually transforms, but he does get shot with a silver bullet there. Mm-hmm. I think that early on, the like the first evening at the you know the bonfire out at the uh, retreat place, mm-hmm. they. They offer. I would. I would say the the uh, screenwriters. They offer up um that seductress woman as to, to be the first kind of um. Suggest yeah. suggested um villain suggested antagonist who is more than likely, a werewolf. That stuff works really really well. Like her seduction of um Christopher Stone's character. Hey, shot a rabbit. I don't really eat meat. Well. It's a sin to, like, not eat what you kill kind of thing. So he takes it to her place and, like, further prepare, and then she tries to seduce him. He's like, no, I'm married. And then she's like, that's all right. I'm a werewolf. I'm going to catch you anyway. (laughs) Which is, like, it's this... Like, that scene's actually kind of crazy, like, the seduction werewolf sex scene, which kind of takes the... The American werewolf had a pretty, like... Let's say, like, a very sexy sex scene. This one, I don't know. I don't know if I call the one the howling sexy, but it's definitely like, if you ever wanted to see two werewolves fuck, here you go. Hey, werewolves, werewolf movies are, are typically just horny overall. Yeah, that's part of the uh, allegory, right? And I mean, not always. Definitely not in Wolfen coming up, um, <laughs> but and uh, and not so much in American Werewolf. But you could say in some ways it is because, as you just mentioned, there is the carnal shower scene, and I think that's suggestive of you know human the human animal for me the the so the allegory the metaphors of the howling this movie is a little bit maybe straightforward is not the right way to put it but i do think it's a little bit more of a it's a little uh cleaner to me that it is about more yeah like more directly that humans are animals with sexual with sexual drive and that is the howling the howling is like i think there i think a lot of uh i think a lot of like like a one of like a certain crux of this screenplay of this story is his uh kind of like wandering off and having sex is it's like 
is being a philanderer. And that's like, and that is, to me, that's the kind I was reading that is like, that's the howling. The howling is, I need to go, I need, I want to have, I want to go fucking go for it with some people, you know, like, like that's my uncontrollable urges. And that's how it's a little bit more of a direct allegory, I guess. And that's not, that's not a, um, that's not a criticism. It's like, that's like, that's just kind of like what I see, what I was kind of seeing them going for. I mean, I think that's a really good point because like if you look at d wallace's character like after she's traumatized which is like you know she's traumatized by she's traumatized by a howling if we want to call howling sexual you know rape assault you know yeah it i was trying to find out the right term i guess like it's it might as well be just let's just say it there's like no in the context of things, I think you can safely say that opening scene in the porn theater or in the porn booth watching those snuff porns is like, it's a sexual assault scene. And now she's traumatized. And then she's going to this retreat with her husband. Who's like still got urges and all that. And she's become repressed because of her encounter with the howling. And then she gets a moment at the end to like unleash the beast, but she doesn't want the beast out. So it has to end. So, it's about it's about sex. It's also about repression and self oppression in I guess a way. Mm-hmm. And man, it, this movie's deeper than I'm even realizing, or maybe we're making it deeper than it actually is. But you know, it's again like I think as a full package movie, like I love American Werewolf. I'm not trying to demean it in any way, but like the howling just connects to me on I guess more interest ways because like I. There's something about, like, something so dark, so uncomfortable that pushes people in a way that, like, you know, there's no escape from it. It's just, like, you know, even, even when they get away, she's still bit, so then she's carrying that curse on, and it's just, like, I'd rather be dead than be a werewolf. Mm-hmm. It's easy and hard to compare these two movies, because I think tonally and their approach, out, take out the effects, but, like, story-wise, it's such a different approach. Which is why I think these movies, and to some extent when we talk about next Wolfen, like, hold up the way they do. Because, like, they're their own thing. You know, like, there's been... And I think that's when you have a year where, like, there's a bunch of, like, sci-fi movies or a bunch of vampire movies or stuff. The movies they get remembered is because, yeah, they're taking, like, a, a familiar monster, but it's like, how do you present that monster? Right. Mm-hmm. Before we move off of the howling here... I uh, want to mention one last Spielberg connection. This time, that also ties American Werewolf and the Howling together, outside of um, Twilight Zone, the movie. Um, Rick Baker and John Sayles were actually working on a project for Spielberg called Night Skies, which was supposed to be his scary alien movie after Close Encounter. But then he decided, nah, I'm going to do E.T. instead. And funny enough, like he asked Baker to do E.T., but I think Baker actually turned down E.T. because he was... He might have been working on American Werewolf. He also might have been working on David Cronenberg's Videodrome because they're all around the same time. So Carlo Rimbaldi, who was Rick Baker's boss on the King Kong remake, did E.T. The Circle of Life. Or The Circle of Effects, people. Yeah, yeah, The Circle of a Small, Very Small Community. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you got to think at the time, like you had Dick Smith, Carlo Rimbaldi, you had a bunch of great effects artists they were in Italy doing all like you know the Fulci movies and Argento movies but a lot of those people never Carlo Rombaldi I think is probably the only Italian effects artist that actually came to America and made stuff 
And I think it's probably because he worked for Dino De Laurentiis on a bunch of stuff, including King Kong. But you also had Tom Savini. You had, um, I'm blanking on Stan Winston, obviously, who did Terminator and stuff. Like, you know, again, what the other thing to help both of these movies is the effects. And it, and it was a lot of effects people come in their own. Obviously, like, I think the Howling's phen- phenomenal, but I'm not going to lie and say that probably Rob Bottin's signature movie is obviously John Carpenter's version of the thing. The Howling effects are good, but, like, they ran out of money. Like, some of that transformation scene was shot in Joe Dante's office because they had no money, so they just shot it. <laughs> they shot it, like, basically because they had to have it. Like, we need... So everyone's working for free doing these effect shots just because they need to be in the movie even though they didn't have the money so i think the thing was like Botine's reward to get a lot of money to do effects that i think a lot of people i mean most effects artists will never ever touch yeah i mean the thing that's fast that's that's fantastic i mean the thing is is i is up there in my mind it i it seems to me it seems to be up there with american werewolf of, like, the best, most talked about visual effects of all time. Yeah. And, you know, it's... I mean, that that became... As we are talking about signature movies, where I feel like Joe made classics all the way around, I think he just never had the movie that got his signature on it, whereas, like, Rob Bottin, yeah, it's John Carpenter's a thing, but everyone always thinks of those Rob Bottin effects. Uh, what's everyone's closing thoughts on The Howling before we let it go running off into the moonlight? It's got a lot. I, you know, I do. I, re- I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the setting. I appreciate the real, like the, maybe it says I'm living out here in LA right now. Like I appreciate the like LA vibes, including the very like spiritual LA retreat vibes. <laughs> very LA, you know, like to be like, we have to go out to a Joshua tree type place to like go find ourselves, you know? Uh, but uh, also, but what I appreciate about the Howling the most is um, <clears throat> something that it has. A, uh, I would I was gonna argue, say above American Werewolf, but maybe I'd just say as equal to American Werewolf is that it just has some really chilling, really well put together horror scenes that um, really that really captivate you. I'll agree with all that again. I'll state Howling's my favorite werewolf movie, my favorite Joe Dante movie, but I will also say, like, my opinion's my opinion, and I don't dislike American Werewolf, so it's okay that you both like that movie. As long as it's not the Goonies. That's the only time, like, we'll we'll go head-to-head. <laughs> what did you say, the Goonies? Yeah. Uh, well, we'll have to do another podcast then about that. <laughs> All right. All right, we're going to have the Battle of the Goonies. <laughs> this has been going on since podcast number one, probably. My utter disdain for the Goonies, but we'll we'll save that for another episode. <laughs> I, I I would like to do a podcast with someone that wants to defend the Goonies. Well, I'm your guy because I I love the Goonies. <laughs> I, I'll I'll give you my I'll give you my thesis of why I don't like the Goonies. Why I watch the Goonies when you can watch Monster Squad? Oh yeah, that's I'm I'm just I'm I'm the absolute converse antithesis of that. <laughs> All right. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do Monster Squad versus Goonies for the rematch, Tim. God damn it. Sounds good. I, I'm looking forward to that. But we're going to take a, another commercial break here. But we're going to return more werewolves on a... Actually, we're recording this on a full moon, so it's a fitting topic. It's a pink moon. 
which I don't know how that relates to werewolves. But anyway, we'll be right back with more Cinematic Void Podcast. All your nightmares are about to be transformed into one single, inescapable fear. Tonight I'm going to show you something. Make you believe. The Howling. Beyond anything human. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Some mornings there's a little monster in all of us. Morning, Fred. And until that first cup of coffee, we can all be pretty beastly. Good morning, Fred. That's when your 7-Eleven store can be a lifesaver. Good morning, Fred. With a good cup of fresh fruit hot coffee to perk up your morning. 7-Eleven coffee brings out the best, not the beast in you. Welcome back. We've been talking about the werewolves of 1981 here on the Cinematic Void podcast with Friend of the Void, Tim Kasher. Up next is our final movie we're going to be discussing, which is from, you guessed it, 1981. It's directed by Michael Wadley, and it is Wolfen, which stars Albert Finney, Diana Venora, Edward James Olmos, Gregory Hines, and Tom Noonan. It is based on a book by Whitley Stryber, who also authored The Hunger, which Tony Scott adapted a few years later after this film. So, he was covering his bases. Werewolf. Vampires. And I think he went hard into, like, alien abduction-type movies and books and stuff like that. I guess I can see it through line. And for those who haven't seen Wolfen, it's basically about a city cop is assigned to solve a bizarre set of violent murders where it appears that the victims were killed by animals. In his pursuit, he learns of an Indian legend about wolf spirits. And I'll get this out of the way. This was the second and last film directed by Michael Wadley. His only other feature-length directing credit was Woodstock. Yes, that Woodstock. The, how long is it? Like four-hour fucking documentary that covers Woodstock? I think everyone's in except for Neil Young because he refused to be in it. But one of those things. But Neil Young also isn't in Wolfen. He refused to be in it. Uh, speaking of Neil Young, he is he is bossy when he works with other people. Like he made he made Scorsese edit out like some cocaine hanging off his nose from the last waltz. Damn. Like he did a line and then like went and played a song with the band and then like he's like, You can't show me with cocaine on my nose. Jeez, Mr. <sighs> Young. Maybe just don't do so much cocaine, or maybe like wipe your nose after you do your coke. I guess Neil's learned since then, maybe. I mean, it, it also led to him doing, like, that electronic album, which I kind of like, but I, I don't know if cocaine in that has anything to do with it, other than maybe he's p- pissing off David Geffen with, like, all those weird albums he put out. <laughs> but enough about Neil Young. So, Tim, do you remember when you, when you first saw Wolfen? Far more recently. I, I think I first watched Wolfen just uh, uh, just about, you know, a few years ago, maybe maybe five years ago or something like that. Yeah, because out of the other werewolf movies we've discussed, maybe not including Full Moon High, like, this one, like, didn't have a very big wide, or it had a wide release, but I'm saying home video-wise, like, it just only hit Blu-ray maybe in the last five, six years through Warner Archive. So it's kind of been missing from circulation. And the thing, I I saw it years ago, probably in the 90s on VHS, and then I saw it again when it hit Blu-ray, and then I... Rewatched it for this because it's like 
I don't remember shit from Wolf, and I better rewatch it. It's not that I re- didn't remember, but like it all kind of blurred, so I was trying to get clarity. And my impression of it, I can't remember my personal first impressions, was it's probably tonally the most serious of the werewolf movies. And it's not really... I mean, there's obviously jokes and stuff like that, but like it's not in the same structure as, say, American Werewolf, that goes for big laugh, big scare... Or the the running of the cynical dark humor that's throughout the howling. This is just it's basically kind of set up like a um, dare I say Oscar bait kind of crime thriller in a way. At least that's how it's presented. How much are we? I mean, we like people aren't like waiting to see Wolfen, so we don't have to worry about spoilers, correct? <laughs> no. <laughs> because Nick had mentioned that maybe you have not seen the entire thing. Do you mind if we just... Yeah, please uh, actually ruin it for me. I'm, I'm, I have questions, because I only saw the first hour of this, <laughs> so I actually am not sure if they ever show a fucking werewolf at all, or if it's just the uh, colored vision. So, uh, you know, spoil away. That's great. So, yeah, this is my take on it. You, you might feel differently about this, Jim. Uh, I find that, and I, in preface, I, I think Wolfen's a good movie. I like, I liked it. I liked it both. I've, I've now seen it twice. It's, it's good. It's a, it's a, it's a quieter old overall. It's got some, it's got some chilling moments, but it's, it's more of a, it, you know, you said Oscar bait. It's more of a, 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 a thinking uh, film about, uh, not even about wolves. It's actually mostly about uh, gentrification and colonialism, you know. But, but uh, I think that the they call it Wolfen. It comes out in eighty one, and it is considered a werewolf movie. I think that's a little bit. I can't say like genre smashing, but like the werewolf, the conceit is used kind of as a red herring. What yeah. do you think? About, what do you think about that? I actually agree with it because I think this is actually closer to another trend that was happening in the late 70s through the early 80s, maybe a little bit later, which is like Native American based horror. And what I mean is like there's some Native American legend or, you know, burial ground and stuff like that. So there was a bunch of movies from like mid to late 70s through like probably early 80s, including John Frankenheimer's The Prophecy, William Girdler's The Manitou. Nightwing, Ghost Dancing, I guess because there's an Indian burial ground in it, Poltergeist. Sure. So that's the other through line in it, and not sure why that was a trend. I guess it's because people are looking for different topics to kind of cover and all that kind of stuff. And But I think it's interesting that they kind of base this movie around the Native American like legends of like skinwalkers and shapeshifters, which are like creatures that can transform from wolves to humans and that kind of stuff. And and I was going to bring this up, and I'm glad you brought it up, which is, like, it's about the gentrification of New York at the same time. Because, like, this is at, I guess, the late 70s, early 80s, where New York was, it didn't really begin its big facelift, but, like, it was definitely, as Ozzy would say, going through changes. (laughs) Yeah. I've talked a lot about New York, because New York is most famous in the 70s for its grindhouse theaters that was 42nd Street, which is now nothing but, like, Disney-fied. When you when I see sleazy Hollywood, the other thing I like to see in New York movies is sleazy New York, which I think was not quite there because the eighties were still like the Ed Koch era of New York was still pretty like rugged and like sketchy and all that. It wasn't until like right before Giuliani and then like he kind of went in and like took New York's like 
I guess, personality. The things I love about New York is like New York being scary, you know, hip hop culture, the punk culture, all that stuff. And then just kind of like Disney that shit. And in a way, not that like Wolfen is like hitting that hard on that, but it definitely talks about like, you know, a lot of people that were in Brooklyn and the Bronx and all that being like, you know, displaced. So white people can move in. And using the balance of, like, Native Americans, who were the original people who got gentrified and pushed out of their land, as we get a little more headier. But I think that's fair, because this movie's definitely a little bit more headier and, like, I'd say sociopolitical than, like, American Werewolf and the Howling. Not that they don't dip in those waters, but, like, this one's mo- more overt. Absolutely. And it gets into... It gets, it majorly gets, goes into class. And, yeah, and it, and it uses... It uses New York's problems with gentrification and at the time use it as symbolic of, of of America. And, you know, with like you're like what you're getting at is like the original gentrifiers being the colonials coming in and taking over America and, and pushing out Native Americans. I mean, actually, if you think about at least these three movies, there's some least tackle on colonialism in like you know, how to deal with, like, the humans or the, you know, the original invaders. You know, American Werewolf, as you said, and I'm just going to go with your through line, so, you know, American goes back to Britain and becomes a monster, but he's basically the monster Britain made. Howling, you have werewolves who are trying to fit into society because it's not safe to be who they are, but at the end, the werewolves are like, you know what, fuck this New Age bullshit. We want to be werewolves. We want to kill people. We want to take our shit back. And then you get the Wolfen, which kind of like hits upon all those things too. So it's kind of interesting that like there is, I'd say the wolf class, as it were. Mm-hmm. In all three of these movies in a way. Although this one's a little more, I guess, subtle. Because like, as Nick was, because Nick didn't get a chance to finish it, which is my fault because... I didn't send him the movie in time to go watch it, but like, plus he didn't realize it was longer than either The Howling or American Werewolf. It's like nearly two hours, which might be one of the sins of this movie because like, there's there's something about a tight ninety minute movie, and not I'm not saying all movies need to be ninety minutes or less. Although I do like a lot of movies that are like seventy five minutes or whatever. <laughs> but I I do think there is an effective use of runtime and building things. It's definitely more of a slow burner than like the previous two movies. Yeah, I can I'll 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 openly criticize it. I I do think I again preface I do I like the I like Wolf and I think it's a good movie. Yeah, I think it could use an editor an editor. It it didn't need to be. <laughs> It didn't need to be an hour. I think it's like an hour fifty four or something like that. It's like it's, it's it kind of uh it it, it plods along here and there. Well, we can get in the why. So, Michael Wadley, who again the only other movie he directed was Woodstock. He this movie had problems, and it's kind of weird that like you give a documentarian like a pretty big budget, a pretty good cast, and a lot of money. And this movie had problems. Like, they fired the original effects team because it wasn't cutting it. They shut down production for a bit because, one, they were over, going over budget, and plus the studio wasn't happy with the dailies. And then when he turned in his cut of Wolfen, it was four hours long. Whoa! It was way too long. So once the studio... So boring. <laughs> once the studio said that, it's like, see ya. 
So they brought in another director to supervise the post-production, which was John Hancock, who directed a really great, I guess before he got big, kind of regional horror movie, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which is a fantastic movie if you haven't seen it, Tim, or Nick. He also directed Bang the Drum Slowly with Michael Moriarty and Robert De Niro, kind of baseball movie. So he took over and, like, he basically was trying to put the movie together. But, like, they kept going through editors. The only other movie I can think of that had such a nightmarish post-production was Tinto Bra's Caligula. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen Caligula or know that. I have not watched it, no. It's, you know, it's a bunch of Oscar winners and future Oscar winners with hardcore pornography cut into it. Mm Mm-hmm. It, it started out as, like, Bob Guccione, who ran Penthouse, trying to compete with Hugh Hefner, who does Playboy, and put out his own art house movie. So he hired Tinto Bra, who made a lot of sexploitation, exploitation movies in Italy, to do this. And Tinto Bra was like, I'm going to be historically accurate. So he didn't want to use any of the porn stars for that Penthouse wanted to use. He wanted to use real actors. He's like, well, I want to use ugly people, because that that's how it was in Rome at the time. So he did a bunch of things. And they fired him. The thing with Tinto Bra is Tinto Bra edits his own films. And Tinto shoots in a way that, like, if you don't know what he's doing or know what his intent is, you get confused. So Caligula's editing credit is edited by the production because they went through so many editors because they didn't know what the fuck to do with it. And Wolfen kind of fell that way because people had all this footage and it was just, like, trying to make the goddamn movie the work. And I do, th- I do think it's still a little too long. And, like, you know, I like slow burns, too. And, you know, I'm not trying to pick off of the runtime, but I agree it does plot in spots. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so that's what was going on. So this is more or less a trouble, trouble production. But, you know, I think Albert Finney's really good in it. And funny enough, like, Albert Finney wasn't even, like, who the studio wanted or, like, actually was actively pursuing this role. Dustin Hoffman, of all people, wanted to be the star of Wolfen. Wow. And Michael Wadley was like, nah, I want to work with Albert Finney. I can take a moment and think of Dustin Hoffman in this movie, and I think it doesn't work. Okay. And the reason why is I think Dustin Hoffman, like, was at that point where, like, he already made, like, Straw Dogs, The Graduate, Marathon Man... He was building a persona. And I think, like, that persona worked for him then, but if he carried that persona to another, like, kind of, like, thriller genre movie, I think it just, it would look like Dustin Hoffman in a maybe werewolf movie kind of thing. Whereas Albert Finney is that kind of actor that just kind of, like, melds into the movie. I mean, that's just the kind of actor he is. Mm-hmm. I, I think it would have been, it might have been more commercially successful, if Hoffman was in it, but like, I think Finney was probably the right actor. for. I can see that. This movie's like, it's got good stuff. I think the effects that are in the movie are really good. Like that opening kill scene where like the bodyguard gets his hand ripped off and goes flying. And like they, they, they maul the rich people. I think that stuff's good. I actually even like that. The werewolf, like weird, like pre predator vision, vision, I guess like negative effect that they do. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm hmm. It, it kind of gives it a weird artsiness, even though it, like, it's, like, artsiness meets, like, music video, maybe, like, Beastie Boys, like, What You Want video <laughs> or something like that. And the way they handle the wolf stuff, they shot all, like, a, like on a crane, like a Luma crane, so it, like, kind of moves very fluid. Yeah, that was nice. Like, that stuff I like, but, like, the movie just kind of just, you know, for a movie with killer wolves or skinwalkers or whatever you want to call them, it takes a while to get there. You know what? 
think about this. It, and this might work for you too, Nick, having just seen an hour of it, seeing the first hour of it, <laughs> is uh, I think that, you know, calling it Wolfen and setting it as a, uh, setting it up as a horror movie, when it's really not a horror movie, ultimately, is one of its major undoings and might be why it hasn't gone down in the annals of uh, cinema history as well. Uh, I think that when I'm watching it, I've, I could have gotten more into the, the kind of juicy crime thriller of it, but, uh, but they, but they kind of dangle this, uh, wolf, wolf in concept, you know, in that you're, that Nick actually, you said it yourself. You're like, are these wolves going to become, am I ever going to see a werewolf or not? And, uh, that might be. There, there in May perhaps lies a problem, right? When you're like producers and maybe there's some test audiences and kind of wondering like what makes this movie work or not work. Uh, if I could have just relaxed, uh, relaxed into um, the crime uh, story of it more without feeling like I'm waiting for the wolf part of it to happen, uh, it might have been more effective. I can't disagree with that. I think that's a really, really... I think it's probably the best take you can have on Wolfen because like it, it definitely, if it operated more like a thriller and it was a little tighter on its runtime and you took out the werewolf thing, or if you did the, dare I say from dust to dawn thing where you obscure that there were werewolves at all. And it's like, Oh shit, there's werewolves. I think it would work better. But because your title of your fucking movie is Wolfen, Mm -hmm. you're expecting a goddamn werewolf or werewolves or anything. I really like that idea. If they would have just done like a hard, done a hard left, you know, uh, and been into like we're into wolf territory, and you don't realize that that's what it's about, you know, call the movie just something like Ten to Midnight, or well, that's the movie, you know, but like call it, call it something more, something that's not already a movie, <laughs> you know, then uh, that might have been good. That might have been uh, compelling. I mean. To be fair, Ten to Midnight has nothing to do with actual Ten to Midnight. It has no relevance. Yeah, funny I picked that one, and that's like, that movie should have a different title. <laughs> the, the title sounds good. I I love Ten to Midnight, though. It's my one of my favorite, like, non-traditional slashers. But we'll we'll talk about that when we're not talking about Wolfen. <laughs> we'll, we'll do do the Goonies Monster Squad Ten to Midnight. <laughs> Nick, that'll be your movie, Ten to Midnight. <laughs> uh <laughs> In comparison, <laughs> it's like what they have—they have young people in all these movies. Granted, one of them's naked and runs around and kills people. Like how that fits in with Monster Squad and Goonies. <laughs> I mean, when he does a truffle shuffle, he lifts his shirt, right? I mean, that. <laughs> Back to Wolf, and here's a problem. Here's a problem I have with um, the actual nuts and bolts of Wolfen. Uh, they're they're pretty they try to be pretty careful about um being uh politically correct about native americans and i appreciate them doing this uh not criticizing it at all uh by saying these wolves they kind of want to make these wolves um as much as close to heroes or as noble as they can because essentially they're not actually necessarily native american they are essentially native americans but they're it's a weird there's a longer kind of like legend yeah. to what these wolf wolfen are uh they kind of break they ran side by side with 
Native Americans, I think is ultimately what they say. But uh, so they try to make them very noble creatures that prey on the sick and the um, and and then they kind of suggest they kind of they, they don't suggest they say and the discarded like the discarded or the unwanted of society. And so one of the scenes that's highly problematic is there is this uh, probably homeless dude who's a drug addict. You know what I'm talking about here? You guys remember? You probably yeah. saw this too, Nick. He's like, pro- he's like probably homeless. He's a drug addict. He's in dire straits. And he like goes and like gives like, you know, whatever his like some kind of necklace or metal medallion that he's <laughs> part of his family from his family or that he's found somewhere or stall and he gets some drugs um these like two like little like like you know like prescription like prescription drugs and then he gets mauled for it what's that all about what kind of like what's the commentary there this poor guy who has a an addiction problem yeah, it's like, and we're saying like this guy just kind of sucks and deserves to die. I I think this is a movie that has a thesis that doesn't stick to it. It's like yes, the these um skinwalkers or wolves that ran with the Native Americans are doing this moral high ground thing, but then it's just like, yeah, I can understand killing rich people that have voodoo ties. That's another thing. It's like they throw voodoo in there, but then the the one guard that gets his hand chopped off has a pentagram on his finger, which is not voodoo-related at all, either. <laughs> oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. So, it's... I think that there's, this is what, I guess, typically is referred to as high concept. And I think the concept is way too high, and maybe some of the people that worked on it were way too high. And, <laughs> you know, kind of missed the boat of it. And I, I think Wolfen has some good stuff. I think some of the scenes are good, but I think as it's trying to be like this, give this moral center of like the wrongs and like what the wolf and represent. It's kind of hit and miss. It, it, it's by convenience. I still give this movie a decent review as it seems you do as well. But yeah, it's, it, but yeah, it's like you start, um, if you want to start digging into it, it's the, the thing's got some problems. Yeah. I mean, the other problem it has, I know Nick, you're not a big Tom Waits fan, but like the, I guess on home video, his cameo has been cut. Like he he plays at a bar or something like that, and they never cleared the song, so they just cut that scene out. What the? Yeah, I think so. The one I just watched the other day in preparation of this, I Tom Waits wasn't in it anywhere. I think he was cut out. Yeah, they, he's been cut out since. I've been stoked on that. Yeah, like I feel like that that's a button. It's like. I like Tom Waits just showing up stuff like, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Tom Waits' Renfield. That's cool. Yeah. Eight million Jim Jarmusch movies he appears in. <laughs> yeah. Primus songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, yeah, there's a scene where he's, like, I guess he's a drunk that owns a bar and he's, like, playing a piano. I forget what song it is, but, like, they didn't clear it for home videos. So instead of paying the money they clear, they're just like, see ya. How about Tom Waits and the Outsiders? That's pretty cool. That's, yeah, that's pretty cool, too. Yeah, Tom Waits is actually a damn good actor. Yeah, I don't I, know why he didn't do more. Well, I mean, he probably didn't want to. I mean, he's... He, I mean, Jarmusch, Coppola... I'm trying to think of the last thing I've seen. Like, anytime, like... Tom, yeah, he was in some Altman stuff. Um, man, yeah. Tom, 
Maybe we'll do an episode on Tom Waits' acting career. But we can't talk about Wolfen since they cut him out of it. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, I think Wolfen is okay. I think it's worth watching. I think, like, if we're going to do scale the 1 to 10, it's maybe, like, 6, 6.5, maybe. I think, yeah, I think 6.5. I almost want to say 7, but I go 6.5. I, I, I almost want to give it seven, but then I think of some of the tedious parts of it, and that's where it's just like, I can't let this fly. It's like, if it was 90 minutes, definitely a seven. But nearly two hours, six and a half. Well, and the way it all ties, the way they tie it all together, it gets a little bit, it's kind of funky. The, the, I, the ending. You'll, if you have, you'll never watch it, Nick. <laughs> the way they tie it all together, you're just kind of like, I, I don't know. Did I just, I, like, it's a little underwhelming. <laughs> The ending where they're in like that apartment with all the werewolves and like they come in and they're like he's like Albert Finney's like no don't shoot the white wolf, and then like there's the wolf skin sitting there because it escaped or did whatever it does, and then you have like natural then you have natural ge- geographic footage of wolves running through New York to the woods, which is which is kind of cool, but it's just like yeah I. The only thing I'm curious about the four-hour cut is, like, what was actually lost and, like, what was actually expanded upon. Not that I actually want to watch it, but I'm just kind of curious of, like, what threads justify turning in a four-hour cut of Wolfen. I hope it's, like, Albert Finney and Diane Navarro or whatever her name is. Uh, I hope that it's, like, they get married and, like, move to the suburbs and have some children and the children, like... (laughs) Like go to school and then... <laughs> the most tedious thing. Yeah, and then they and then somebody calls him and is like, "There's still a wolf problem." Gregory Hines calls. There's still a wolf problem. That's one thing I want to say. I think Gregory Hines is really great in this movie. And the other thing, the other thing I really love about this movie, and there's actually a really good one in The Howling too, is the the morgue or the yeah the morgue scene. Like, there's something about, like, a good morgue scene in a movie where, like, you know, you get your gallows humor, you get your morgue workers that are just over this shit. Like, funny enough, to go back to Howling, John Sayles, that's his cameo in The Howling. He plays the morgue worker, and it's, like, eating a sandwich and that kind of shit. But I do like the morgue scene in this movie. And maybe if it... I I guess the thing is, like, I kind of wish it would either go more police procedural or more werewolf movie. And it does neither of those things where I think is what really hinders Wolfen. Yeah. And I don't know if like, I don't, I don't know if cutting it down would help. Obviously, I don't know. I don't think four hours of it's going to help, but you know, it, it, it's worth checking out it. You know, if there wasn't a full moon high, I would say it was last place, but it's third, but I think it's a distant third when we talk about American Werewolf in the House. Actually, back to giving it credit, I'll I'll give it more credit than that. You know, I'll probably still stick with the six and a half. But as far as um, just the world of horror, I mean, and just if, if for anybody who's a horror fan who hasn't seen it and just is you know seeking another yet another horror movie, I'd say absolutely nothing wrong with seeing nothing wrong with watching Wolfen. Yeah, I I, it's not me telling you not to watch it. It's just like. The movie's got some flaws, but, like, you know, it it's something you can learn from. It's something you can still enjoy. There's something you can take away from it. And plus, when other people decide to do their werewolf movie, don't use Wolfen as the <laughs> the premise. It's like, 
Although, the one thing I will say, this is the only one of these movies used real wolves, and apparently they had to have sharpshooters on set when they let the wolves out, because it, cause if the wolf trainer said if any of them gets spooked and they go crazy, there's no stopping them. So they had, like, snipers at the ready to fucking pop a wolf on set. Yikes. Which almost sounds like a better movie in a way, but <laughs> wolf snipers on wolfing. Here's a um, another thing that's kind of, that kind of a fun... Uh, takeaway from all three of these movies is uh it was nice to visit three different major cities you got new york la and london something we none of us have been able to do well outside of la but going to visit places yeah you know it's like i want to do the werewolf tour do the howling locations the wolfen locations and then go to the uk and do the american werewolf i don't know it's a it's a fun idea the Werewolves of 81 World Tour. I mean, I'm trying to... Th- is there a Chicago werewolf movie? Maybe this is something that needs to be made. Well, Tim, since you're the master of concept records, I think it's going to land on you. All right, shit, all right. Not saying that you have to, like, do your Chicago werewolf movie, but... But I will, I, fine. I, I think you should, Tim. It's, you know, you only live once. Just keep it at 90 minutes or less. And make sure there's actual werewolves. <laughs> but we're going to take one last break here. But when we return, it's going to be read, watch, and listen here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Orion Pictures presents Wolfen. For centuries, they have been hiding in the rubble of your cities. The concealed threat. The invisible terror. They can sense the rhythm of your blood. Hear clouds pass overhead. See where you are blind. A force so deadly, it will tear the screen from your throat. Wherever you are, they are. Somewhere in the world, every other day, a corporate executive is assassinated. Team her up with Wilson. There's not a trace, not a speck of metal. Nothing softer could have ripped and ravaged like this. Is it an animal? Well, it ain't human. Do you realize how many people disappeared without a trace? Something out there might be eating people. By what? The carnivore. You got yourself some kind of meat eater. Meat eater. Meat eater. Meat eater. eater. What is it? It's wolfing. They're only animals. They might be gods. In their eyes, you are the savage. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since we last recorded a podcast. So, Tim, since you're the guest today, why don't you tell us about some things you've been reading, watching, and or listening to? Oh, well, uh, 
reading wise, I just got finished uh, on going on quite the epic journey. I uh, kind of nerded out and read the first three Dune books. Whoa! Either of you guys ever decided to, <laughs> to go down that rabbit hole? <laughs> it are they all about spice trade? Uh, yeah, you know, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I I've never read them. Uh, I'm not the biggest Dune fan. I kind of I appreciate. I appreciate the Lynch movie. I appreciate the Yodorowsky movie that never happened. Sure, yeah. I don't know if I'm too thrilled, but, like, my biggest takeaway when I watch Dune is, like, this is really just about spice, but, like, I, you know, each their own. I'm not a big connoisseur of spice trade, as it were. The, um, the first book is phenomenal. It really is. Um, I'm not saying anybody who's not into sci-fi, like, it needs to read it, but I don't even know how much. I'm actually not into sci-fi. I don't read a lot. I don't read much sci-fi. But uh, I've been reading Margaret Atwood, and uh, then I was then I read Octavia Butler, and I just kind of ended up being... Actually, I think the pandemic had a little something to do with this, just kind of reading these kind of apocalyptic books. And and then that just kind of turned me over to Dune, and I just ended up, before I knew it, I ended up reading the first three. I'm ending, I'm going to stop there. There's six of them, and I will not, I will not continue. But the first one's really good. It really is. It's a. It's a, just a. I. I totally understand why the success of that. Uh, the second two are are like I'm. You know, they're good. Nice reads. Nice reads. <laughs> you mentioned um, Yodorowsky. That reminded me that one of the movies I just recently watched was I'd never watched The Holy Mountain before. Ooh. And that movie's wild. Wild times. Wow. <laughs> You know, I love The Holy Mountain because it's like the ultimate fuck you movie because every time it gives you the slightest thread to grasp onto it, and then you get to the ending where it just like, it pulls everything out. It's like most, I feel like it's just Yodorowsky with both middle fingers in the air. It's like, here's your ending. Everything doesn't matter. But yeah, that, that that's a fucking great movie. Yeah, I quite like the ending of it. Um, and I'm surprised that it's, well, I, I recognize that it's, highly controversial especially for the time it came out um there's a lot of pretty intense pretty intense scenes in there but um it's so gorgeous and so um so like really uh meticulously made that uh i would think that it would have gotten received more even more attention at its at the time i'm sure it received enough attention yeah i mean that that was another movie because um I forget the guy the the uh the Beatles manager helped produce these movies like I think Avco is the name or I forget or whatever that company is that owns it and like for years you couldn't legally get El Topo or Holy Mountain and it's only been like maybe the last like 15 20 years that they've been like widely available cuz like the way I first saw Holy Mountain was be- was a, basically a Japanese bootleg of it Oh okay like it, it, it's amazing that those movies are widely available. And like, I, I think about beyond fest when we screened a, we did a midnight show, the Holy mountain and like all these like people came and like, they were all like tripping balls and ready to go for it. It was like, the, it was one of the most intense crowds I've ever seen rolling there. Did you guys have, um, you know, uh, award season favorites? I still need to catch up on all that stuff. I want to go, I want to see sound of metal we've been working for the cinematech and like, I've been working on like posting up all the zoom Q and A's after they happen on YouTube and doing some edits. So it's like, 
been going through all those conversations like man i should watch some of these movies so i, I think i'll get around to it but like sound of metal promising young woman no man land like there seems like a lot of things i really want to see i just haven't watched them yet yeah same boat i really want to see nomadland for sure and us uh, and sound of metal but it's just yeah where i've just been watching werewolf movies <laughs> <laughs> well you mentioned nomadland and sound of metal and those are two of my favorite personal favorites of the year so i'd recommend yeah. those two absolutely awesome i'm gonna try to check them out sometime in the next week or two i mean it it's kind of weird because, like, working at a movie theater, it I have this stigma about watching new movies, especially when we do the premieres and all those events. Or, like, even in theater, like, I was like, man, I can't watch this movie here, so I have to go to, like, the Arclight or something to go watch any of the new movies just to have this, this separation. So I'm like, if something went wrong with the projector or anything like that, I'm like, oh, it's not my theater. I, I can just enjoy this. <laughs> what have you been listening to, Tim? I'm not really going down any specific... Uh any specific uh roads or uh you know genres or anything lately sometimes i'll really get into uh you know like listening to some metal and heavier stuff and other times i'll get into you know i'll like specifically get into like classic rock and i feel like i'm a little all over the place right now but uh i things that pop into my head is like lydia loveless had a record out recently and really into that and there's a new band called bachelor which is very like indie pop that's just like really great stuff it's like uh it's a uh, it's two bands pale hound and jason that they joined forces and um that's a it's not out yet but that's pretty great oh there's this band black midi that's fantastic i don't know if either of you ever listened to that no but i'm gonna have to definitely check all that out but i also do a lot of like been listening to more of uh ligety back to like kind of score like music score stuff you know, Ligeti, who's like Kubrick, kind of Kubrick kind of hits on him. Like 2001 was a big one for, like, if I'm even saying his name right, I don't know, composer uh, Ligeti. Uh, that's some pretty awesome stuff. And, you know, if I get back into metal again, which I'm sure I will shortly, I'll be putting some Meshuga on. You mentioned Primus earlier. I grew up on Primus, and then I have had a resurgence of Primus in the last few years. <laughs> Dude for Primus did a weird record with uh with like fucking one of John Lennon's sons or something. Lennon Claypool Delirium or something like that. Claypool Lennon Delirium. Weird. What a fucking weird world. <laughs> but yeah, it's a cool record. It really actually kind of was. <laughs> it's pretty wild. That's that might be the most insane thing I've heard about this whole entire podcast is like one of John Lennon's sons and um what's his name for Primus doing something together. Less Claypool. Less, less Claypool. I don't know why I blanked on that when that's just... This should be cultural osmosis at this point. <laughs> Do you have anything else, Tim? Or are you clear? Yeah, I'm good, man. It was a nice, nice, nice chat. Nice, like, and thanks also for all that. It's a lot of great... So I was saying during one of the breaks, it's like it's a great wealth of information. I get to kind of have a nice conversation, but also kind of take in a lot of interesting tidbits awesome so i'm gonna throw it to nick real quick so he can do his rewatch and listen cool all right so i've been uh i've been kind of traveling for work and out a little more lately and not just stuck in my apartment so i've been listening to books more than just reading so uh lately i've been listening to cosmic trigger 2 robert anton wilson um finished the first one pretty recently so now i'm on i'm on this one you know robert anton wilson this is more of his uh 
uh, nonfiction work where he's just kind of talking about his writings and his philosophies and stuff like that. So he's an out there, you know, magical seventies, you know, tripped out guy, friends with Timothy Leary that, you know, I, I know you guys know, but, um, uh, what else? And then I've been listening to the cocaine and rhinestones podcast, uh, the new season about George Jones. Um, and then I've been going back to old episodes. Uh, so then as far as music listening, I've been listening to a ton of George Jones and just other, like just kind of be, being kind of lame and lazy and just going on Apple music and being like outlaw country, you know, and then just letting it throw me a playlist and just listen to some old country music. So that's kind of the vibe I've been on the past, uh, the past couple weeks. Um, and then I just watched, I haven't watched a ton of movies, but I just watched the life and death of a porno gang. Um, which is uh, a Serbian film that came out around the same time as a Serbian oh, film. Oh, wow. And it's kind of known as its kind of brother, sister, cousin film. Um, it's it's not as fucked up, but it's pretty fucked up. Like someone, someone definitely licks a horse's dick in this movie. This is a fucked up movie. Um, it's a, and actually the reason I checked this out, Jim... Uh, is because, and we can cut this if you want, but uh, you mentioned snuff films recently. So maybe we'll be talking about snuff films at length. So I was like, oh, I'm going to check out this <laughs> this, uh, you know, this movie that goes into like snuff territory. Uh, so that's why I went for that. And it's, it's fucked. It's totally <laughs> fucked. So, and if that's your thing, you like horror movies that are just totally, yeah, it's, where it's just, it's too much. It's too much. Well. I feel bad because we are doing an episode on like snuff or movies that deal with snuff. So a little bit of spoilers. So we're going to watch Videodrome. We're going to watch the movie Snuff. We're going to watch Hardcore with George C. Scott. We're also going to watch Emmanuel in America, which is funny you mentioned a horse because there's a horse scene in that movie too. So giddy up, partner. You got a lot coming up for you. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess for my read, watch, and listen, reading, I've been reading this book called The Giallo Canvas, Art, Exus, and Horror Cinema by Alexandra Heller Nichols, Nicholas. And it's basically taking a look at the the thing that, actually, funny enough, because like Travis had mentioned and we were doing the Umberto Lenzi episode with him, we were talking about like characters in the movie that paint or into art and stuff like that, which is a running through line in a lot of Giallo. So like I was, it's kind of a cool book that kind of covers that. Watch, I watched a couple of werewolf movies we didn't discuss from the 1930s and 40s. I watched Werewolf of London and She-Wolf of London. It's part of that big Universal Monsters box set. Both of those movies are great because one's like 70 minutes, the other one's like 61. So, Universal Monsters. Knew how to keep that runtime down. Learned something from a wolfen. Uh, I also watched a movie called Death Laid an Egg, which I've seen before. It's from 68. It's also known as Plucked, or better known as the Chicken Farm Giallo movie. It's a Giallo that takes place on a chicken farm and all kinds of weird stuff. And also going back to Snuff, since we're getting ready to do that episode, and maybe later this month we'll be recording, I watched Larry Cohen's Special Effects, which, unlike the previous Larry Cohen movie we discussed in this podcast, Full Moon High, this one's a phenomenal movie. It stars Zoe Lunn, who is best known for being Miss 45 from Abel Farrar's Miss 45, and Eric Bogusana, who's in, I think, I think Oliver Stone movie Talk Radio. I think that's what he was in. And I've also been watching old episodes of Silk Stalkings. I put that on a knife and fall asleep. And my wife was like, why are you watching a show where like people in lingerie get murdered? It's like, <laughs> oh man. It's the 90s. 
uh, listen. Uh, it's I've been listening to various tracks and various other things here and there, but like the three main things is because they came out pretty recently is the new Cannibal Corpse, Violence Unimagined, Conway the Machine, Lapaquana, and Dinosaur Junior swept into space. So I'm covering all kinds of genres and what I've been listening to lately: death metal, hip hop, indie rock, or I guess. What would you call it, Dinosaur Jr.? I guess it's not really indie rock anymore. Well, just maybe just rock. Um, Campbell Corpse is pretty good. Conway Record, we I think we talked about a little bit on the last podcast, right, Nick? Yeah. So I don't need to go that. But that Dinosaur Jr. record actually surprised me because I heard a couple singles off it and I wasn't into it. But then listening to the whole record, it all kind of made sense and worked together. It's one of those. It's one of those records where like you can't listen to things out of context. You need the whole picture. So, enjoying that record. So, anyway, that wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void podcast. I want to thank Tim Casher for joining us and bringing us such a wonderful, howling good time. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys. This is great. Awesome, and we'd love to have you back for that Goonies versus Monster Squad versus Ten to Midnight. I don't know how that one's going to fit in, but we'll we'll make it work. God damn it. Uh, Coming up on the podcast, we'll be joined by horror author and guitarist of the band Broken Hope, Jeremy Wagner. That's going to be the next episode after that. And also, want you to mark your calendars, because coming up on Friday, May 14th, Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinematis movie will return with an episode presented by Culture Shock Releasing. Until then, see, see you in the, the void. void. Let's go to Dr. Hurst. Yeah, be rational, sure. I'm a fucking werewolf, for Christ's sake.